This week on Punch Mountain, Charlize Theron plays a sexy spy? Take my secrets, please. Pack a thousand looks for a ten-day trip because we're watching Atomic Blonde. Punch Mountain starts now. Welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined, as always, by the one they call the radioactive brunette, Mr. David Hada. David Hada, how are you? I ate a lot of paint as a child, and I'm still paying for it. I'm doing all right, Mac. How are you? Oh, who can resist delicious, delicious paint? It's the mouthfeel. It crunches in my mouth. Whenever someone describes food, and like, oh, it's got a good mouthfeel. Even sometimes when I agree with them, I could still feel that word mouthfeel going down my spine. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know. I feel like if I went into a Pornhub and typed mouthfeel, it would be like, 30,000 results. <laughs> mouthfeel taboo, 70,000 results. <laughs> Oh, mouthfeel taboo stuck in dryer. Oh my goodness, my computer. My computer broke. Speaking of my go-to, David, I'm very excited to welcome yet another guest here to Punch Mound. The hits keep on coming. This person is a comedian, writer, musician, also raised by wolves in the woods. It's my own feral wife. Please welcome the show, Jimena. Oh my goodness. Hello. Jimena, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Are you excited to talk about, uh, well, I guess let's just say it. We're talking about Atomic Blonde tonight. Are you excited to talk about Atomic Blonde? You better be. You picked always, it. Always. Always excited to talk about Atomic Blonde. Well, I got good news. So am I. Yay. All right. Let's get into it. So this was one that uh, we've been wanting to do for a while, but we were saving for you because I knew that this was one of a short list of movies that you wanted to talk about. So why Atomic Blonde? I mean, what's your, you've, I know you've seen this movie because we saw it in theaters together. But why does this movie stand out to you? What's your history with this film? You know, I keep asking myself that question, like looking back to when it first came out when we saw the trailer, getting super excited for it and asking myself, what makes this different? So yeah, the main character is female. So that's great. An action movie starring a woman. I love Charlize Theron. So I trust the movies that she's in when they are action movies like this. I don't know if maybe the trailer was just really good or something about it. I just was like, I I felt it. I was like, this is, this is going to be a great movie. I think I'm going to enjoy this. And then when we actually saw it, it was true. I did all of the, I remained excited for it. And maybe the fact that I, I still think about what is it about this movie that stands out? Like that it stays in my head that I keep asking that question. Maybe that's part of the appeal that I'm, I'm just always looking for more answers as to why I love it so much. <laughs> so you're saying it has some stickiness to it. Yeah. It's just, it looks great. She looks great. I love the story. I, uh, every fight scene, I'm like, hell yeah, hell yeah. I will say personally, the story is not this movie strong suit, according to me, just because, man, so this is the third time I've seen it. And this time it took me a second to get into it because I think when I started watching, it, I was like, all right, I'm going to pay super hard attention to this plot this time. <laughs> it's not going to surprise me again. And then I, at the end, I still am a little like, huh? But you're right. This movie is stylish. The action scenes are awesome. I, you're right, though. I've seen it, I will say, two and a half times because one of those times was someone was watching it on a plane in a seat uh, in front of me. And so I watched it with them. <laughs> and I, it's that same 
same thing you said, where I'm like, okay, this time I'm going to pay super close attention and not miss any details of the plot. But I keep getting distracted by how good the movie looks and how I ha- how happy I am with just the the feel of it. So I'm just like, yeah, I, I trust that this is important spy stuff. I feel like that's a good litmus test for any movie where it's like, if I could watch it over somebody's shoulder on a plane, not that bad. Girls Trip, the same way. Couldn't tell you a thing about that movie. I know I love the crap out of it because I saw it over someone's shoulder. But yeah, Atomic Blonde absolutely fits that mold. You really don't need to know what's going on. If you just look at it and listen to it with the soundtrack, that's amazing. This is a pretty solid two hours of entertainment. Uh, I was on a longer flight and people kept watching Logan at different points. And so I was like really trying to sleep. And then I would just open my eyes for a second and I'd see like Daphne Keene like cutting off a dude's head. And I'd be like, well, I'll just watch five minutes of this. Um, but yeah, Atomic Blonde directed by David Leach, I think is how you say his name. We don't know. He's the uncredited co-director of John Wick. I say uncredited. I mean, he got credit. It's just his name is not in the little, the small writing on the bottom of the movie. But yeah, instead of continuing on with the John Wick series, he busted out to do his own thing. And I think he went on to direct what? Deadpool 2, Hobbs and Shaw, Bullet Train. But this was his follow-up. I feel like I saw a lot of headlines around the time it came out as like, oh, uh, Joan Wick. Like, oh, this is just John Wick with Charlize Theron. But I I think it does some stuff that John Wick doesn't necessarily try to do. David Leach here is really going for some style points, you know, with the way that they do the fights, the 80s aesthetic of this movie. And I'm using aesthetic and not setting. Of course, it has this amazing action scene, which we'll get to later. But I think that's why it it stood out for me. What about you, David? What overall thoughts? Anything else stood out about this movie to you? Well, everything stood out about this movie to me because this is my first time watching it. I had not watched it prior to seeing it for The Mountain. It was one of those things where it caught me so by surprise or it caught me so off guard that I had not yet gotten around to this. I had to go back and figure out what the hell was going on at that time to where I dismissed it. And I found out this came out at the end of July 2017. And that was a weird period for me because I was working in a movie theater. I was working in a five screen movie theater. Atomic Blonde comes out the week after Dunkirk, which my movie theater had a 70 millimeter print of. So we were, of course, I was going to take over our big theater for the better part of a month. So then you also figure we had Spider-Man Homecoming a few weeks prior. That's going to be one of our other theaters. We had Baby Driver still in theaters. So we just never actually programmed Atomic Blonde. It never made its way to my theater. So I just never, like, I never did anything outside of my job. It was just, it was the five movies we were showing, and that was it. So digging that, digging up this information uh, really opened up some wounds for me. But I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it was just like, oh, man, I was really running myself ragged for what? And then that's a whole other existential thing that I'm not going to get into. I understand you, though. I understand you. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> um, but with that said, I didn't know much of anything about this movie. I didn't know this was a spy movie, which could have been helpful going in because David don't do so good with spy movies. It's a lot of like double crosses and triple crosses. And who's playing who? I don't have time for that. I just want to like, hey, we robbed a bank. We got to get to the airport. That's really all I need out of an action movie. So like watching this the first time, you know, I tried to try to switch that off and to say, okay, I know I'm going to watch this twice. Let's just go ahead and absorb this movie for what it is. I loved absorbing this movie the first time around, but I'll tell you what, and we'll get into this as the episode goes on. I think this movie rewards repeat viewings. You know, if this is your first time watching it for the mountain, It could certainly be a one and done, but I encourage you to watch it again just to lock some things into place, just to feel less dumb about it, maybe because maybe you weren't expecting to feel dumb about the follow up to John Wick. 
but this this movie will reward you. I'll say that. Yeah, I will say what you learn about Charlize Theron's character at the end, it is a little bit of a game changer in terms of what you might think about her character. And that could definitely affect uh, a second rewatch. Hey, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. Like if you search Atomic Blonde story on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, what is the story behind Atomic Blonde? Well, Mac, it's based on a comic book featuring America's original Atomic Blonde, Richie Rich. Mac, was Atomic Blonde based on a true story? Yes, the crazy summer of 2023 when Atomic uh, pioneer Oppenheimer met up with blonde person Barbie. Jimena, what does the ending of Atomic Blonde mean? Well, you know, the ending of Atomic Blonde, oddly enough, means that Christianity is real. It's true, all of it. David, who was the traitor in Atomic Blonde? I'll tell you who the traitor was, the marketing team for Atomic Blonde. They sent this movie up the river, it deserved better. Before we dive into the thrilling trust no one world of Cold War espionage, let's dive into the not as thrilling world of cold cut enthusiasm. Yes, it's yet another sandwich reference. It's also a friendship check-in. How are y'all doing? Let's start with you, David Hotta. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I took a couple days off work. So I'm on day three of four days off. Uh, it's very nice. I just, I hit a wall at work. I was short with a few too many people. And I said, I need to cool it for a few days. So I did jack shit today. It was great. Uh, I plan on doing jack shit tomorrow. And then I'm going to go into work rolling in on a Thursday. Like, give me my three-day week. This is this is what I aspire to, Mac. That sounds amazing, David. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a long time coming. The last time I took a day off was uh, when my parents came to visit for a day. And so that doesn't really count because, like, you know, being around people exhausts me. And so, like, I kind of needed to take two days off. I needed a day to just kind of rebuild myself so that I could get yelled at by customers. But uh, I pulled the trigger on this one. It, it's uh, It feels good. I think I might have some candy tomorrow. Maybe some baked goods. Yeah, I don't do know. some we'll candy. See. I love that for you. Do Thank some you. candy. <laughs> do some candy. Do some lines of sweet tarts. Hell yeah. That sounds amazing. Sweet tarts. Gross. What? Oh, wait. No, sweeties are the gross ones. Sweet tarts are the good ones. Smarties are the sweeties. Smarties are the worst, right? Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I like I like Smarties. I like a good chalky candy. I also like uh, Messenger Hearts from the from Valentine's Day. I like those. Yeah. Incorrect. Both gross. Uh, a feral wife, Hamana. You're not my feral wife, but hey, feral wife, how are you? Well, let's <laughs> check in with you. <laughs> um, I'm good. Uh, today the most exciting, unexpected thing was coming home and greeting my dog and thinking, oh, why is your face wet? And I'm like, wait, that's not wet. That's greasy. Why is your face greasy? And she did something that she's never done before because normally we have to make sure to push the chairs into the table because otherwise she will use the chairs to see if anything was left on the table. This is the first time that she pulled something off the counter and wow. she ate my last taco. Oh no! And left styrofoam and onions all over <laughs> And I'm not, she's 10 years old. She's just all of a sudden like discovering or, you know, she's like, fuck it. You know, I, I guess I'm going to do these things. So I had to give her a bath. Anyways, I was not expecting this and I missed that taco. Yeah, I get that. So are you going to start buying extra tacos now just to like sort of survival tacos that you can leave out for, for the feral dog to get? <laughs> uh, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to buy survival tacos, but hide them for myself. You know, okay, okay. And just leave one like behind the toaster, leave one in the freezer, maybe be like, oh, look at this, a frozen taco. So really, the teacher has become the janitor in this equation. <laughs> You've been fired from your teaching job because you're you're teaching no lessons to people. And now you're just hoarding for yourself. I, You know what? 
Yeah, and that's how I want to live. Mac Blake, how are you? I am doing good. I did want to mention something that happened to me yesterday. Look, we all have things about ourselves, you know, our, our outward appearance that strangers will occasionally like latch onto, right? Like, oh, I I have a tattoo people ask me a lot about. Or and David, in your case, they're like, oh, people are maybe you're always coming commenting on my thick lustrous hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am uh, six foot six. And so people will frequently, frequently come up to me and ask me how tall I am, which is fine. But what happened the other day is, is my favorite is when people just start guessing. <laughs> like I, I got, I was in a convenience store and I got uh, something out of the, the drink cooler and I turn around and, you know, to go buy it. And I immediately make eye contact with this dude who's like, what are you, six, eight, six, nine? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, six, six, which usually people uh, under guess because of my bad posture. So I must have really been uh, stretched out, reaching high for that uh, Red Bull or something. <laughs> but the weird guessing, it's like I'm a, like a carnival thing, like oh, six, six, uh, six, five, uh, you know, what do I win? And it, it's happened so often now. I just carry around like small Chinese made uh, stuffed animals uh, mm-hmm. that I just, you know, if someone gets it correct, I give them a doll and I go, if you find me again and, and guess correctly, we could trade two in for a larger toy. <laughs> it turns out you're the larger toy. Oh, no, I'm not Three little giving babes. myself away. Cardi style to people on the street. <laughs> it's called dignity, feral wife. Look into it. But you're also in a convenience store, so just point to the door and be like, watch me leave. And then like you point to where it measures the criminals on their way out and be like, six, six, motherfucker. It's right there by the door. Oh, uh, the criminals uh, have ripped that off the door. It was one of the, uh, they're like, we're sick of getting arrested. <laughs> All right, enough personal business, David. Everyone check your wiretaps. Is it time to do this thing? Mac and Hamana slip on your thigh high boots. We're going in. My legs are greased and they are ready. Hey, David, just to give uh, people who may not have seen this movie in a while a recap or people that are unfamiliar with this movie, just a level set. Could you give the back of the box description, please? You bet I can. Oscar winner Charlize Theron stars as elite MI6's most lethal assassin and crown jewel of Her Majesty's Secret Intelligence Service, Lorraine Broughton. When she's sent on a covert mission into Cold War Berlin, she must use all of the spycraft, sensuality, and savagery she has to stay alive in the ticking time bomb of a city simmering with revolution and double-crossing hives of traitors. Broughton must navigate her way through a deadly game of spies to recover a priceless dossier while fighting ferocious killers along the way in this breakneck action thriller from director David Leach, John Wick. 2017, 114 minutes, directed by David Leach, rated R for sequences of strong violence, language throughout, and some sexuality nudity. Uh, shout out language throughout. That doesn't get used enough. <laughs> Let's just get into it. She must use all the spycraft, sensuality, and savagery. Ooh, sensuality and savagery being so close to each other. That paints quite a picture. It really does. This feels like, I think it's no accident, but this feels a lot like an 80s movie in a lot of ways. Even down to the back of the box description where they're basically telling you, it's R-rated, there's nudity. <laughs> but they don't want to like come out and say like, Hey, David, from your teenage years, watch this movie, rent it, keep it from your parents. Also, breakneck, man, that's a that's a good adjective. Honestly, this back of the box description is pretty good. Pretty solid. And it was also informative. You know, having watched the movie going in cold and feeling dumb and confused afterwards, I really could have used a back of the box before I watched the movie. People who are unfamiliar with this movie may not realize that James McAvoy is in it because he's not mentioned on the back of the box. I feel like <laughs> James McAvoy sitting in his room an agent gets a phone call. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And James is like, do we get the back of the books? And then the agent slowly shakes his head no. All right, how does this movie start? All right, this movie starts in East Germany, November 1989, just days before the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
An MI6 agent named Gascoigne, played by Sam Hargrave, is robbed and murdered by a KGB agent named Yuri Bakhtin, played by Johannes Johannesson. But not before Bakhtin reveals it was the mysterious double agent named Satchel who gave up Gascoigne. We then cut to London ten days later, where fellow MI6 agent Lorraine Broughton, played by Charlize Theron, is to be debriefed by her superior Eric Gray, played by Toby Jones, and visiting CIA operative Emmett Kurtzfeld, played by John Goodman. We're about to learn that Lorraine's past ten days have been very, very busy. Let's start it off, Mac. What are you, what are you thinking of uh, the start of this movie? How is this feeling to you? It feels good. I mean, it begins with, what, some newsreel footage? Is that right? Not newsreel. News footage. <laughs> News on the march! Tomorrow. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's going to start with some some video footage of Reagan doing his tear down, the, tear down this wall speech. You know, he's standing in Berlin. Immediately, this tells me everything I need to know. I know where this movie is taking place. I know when this movie t- is taking place. I know what kind of movie it is. I know it's going to be kind of a spy espionage movie. I thought this was a terrific way to start the movie if you're trying to save time and not confuse people. I do remember the first time I saw this movie, the spray painting stuff of like the titles or like the chapters of the movie or whatever, that worried me a tiny bit because I I was worried that it, I was like, is this going to be cheesy? The spray painting stuff, is this trying too hard? The second time watching it, I was all for it. I was like, I love this aesthetic. This is great. I love the spray painting sound. It's ASMR. But the first time I watched it, I was, but maybe it's because I'm just always worried. You know, you get excited about a movie, you go see it and you're like, oh, I hope I'm not let down. And so maybe I just remember thinking, is this a bad sign? <laughs> Which I, I feel dumb about now. I'm like, it's fine. There's no problem with it. No, the 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 spray paint aesthetic is always a tricky gambit. It feels like it could go either way. Like it's going to be this sort of rebellious, anarchic type of movie, or it could just feel like not quite hop topic, but maybe like journeys, maybe just yes. like a skate shop, just appealing to the lowest common denominator. This works. This this really, you know, it, it kind of tricked me a little bit where it's like in November of 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. This is not that story. So I'm like kind of relieved at the beginning. I'm like, oh, thank God I don't have to pay attention to like who's double crossing who. I can yeah. just relax for this movie. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed that a lot more this time around. This is not that movie. It's like, oh, man, that's so punk rock. Yeah, <laughs> man, I'm an atomic blonde, a dummy, because I did not even pick up on the fact that the spray painting of the opening credits or titles that that was a, a nod to the fact that the Berlin Wall in its final days was covered in graffiti. I, I did not get that until you brought it up just now, which is funny because at some point they show the Berlin Wall and someone has spray painted the spot from 7-Up with like the sunglasses on and everything. And I saw that and I was like, well, that that must have been based on real pictures of the Berlin Wall. I don't think Atomic Blonde was like taking some like, you know, a little bit of uh, endorsement money under the table from 7-Up to put a weird airbrushed spot on the wall, but whatever. So in case you did not know, this is the 1980s. Boom, 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 boom. Here comes Blue Monday. It's playing and we see a dude running. And this dude is running all out. Oh my goodness. The actor playing the running dude is Sam Hargrave. I say actor, but a lot of people know him as a stunt coordinator. He also is the director of Extraction and I believe Extraction 2. Oh, good for him. In fact, on this movie, I think he's credited as like the lead stunt coordinator. Uh, I had to look that up because (laughs) when we were watching this movie, I was like, is that Robert Pattinson? Like, kind of wanting it to be Robert Pattinson for some reason. Yeah. I thought it was Michael Fassbender. I was like, oh, what a fun little cameo for him to just be in the first <laughs> two minutes of this. But good for Sam Hargrave to be confused with other better actors. <laughs> I mean, it was a fun cameo, but like three levels down or something. <laughs> but yeah, Sam Hargrave is playing Gascoigne, who's then hit with a car. Now, this car crunch is not a very realistic car crunch. 
Like it definitely looks like, oh, uh, someone was on wires and they kind of got battered around a little bit. But you know what? I will forgive a non-realistic car crunch because if you would have a realistic car crunch, the only way to do that is CGI or really kill somebody. So uh, I'm okay with uh, kind of an, an obvious fake, someone getting hit by the car. But the soundtrack of this movie, you know, frequently will happen when you you get farther away from a decade. Like if you want to have a movie set in like the 70s, it becomes like these three songs like again and again, you know, or like uh, you, you don't get too many deep cuts when it comes to mm. the music of this movie. But also a lot of music in this movie, it's like remixes of 80s songs. And I can appreciate that because I don't think this movie is necessarily going for this like super realistic 80s vibe. It's kind of using that time period as an aesthetic. You know, like everything obviously is like super neon in this film, uh, which I got to admit, uh, I dig. I dig quite a bit. And so this is kind of right up my alley. What about what about y'all? Yeah, same. I wish I could remember how I felt the first time I watched it. But this second time, same. Like I noticed that, oh, these are all the top hits that everyone would recognize. Some of these are like, you got to have it in an 80s movie. But I was here for it. And I did like that the, what, what's the 99 Luft Balloons or whatever. Mm-hmm. I like oh, yeah, that there were several versions of that song depending on what was happening. So that was really cool. And then there's that scene where she, she uh, Atomic Blonde, turns up the music because she's about to get into a fight and she's kind of hiding. It's going to muffle the sounds. And I think it's Wham! or is it just George Michael? Uh, it's just George Michael. Yeah, that song. I just, I, I did not notice that the first time I saw the movie. So this time I was really paying attention to that. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. That she tur- Yeah, I'm really into that. I, I love that she picked the song. <laughs> so I was on board all the way. You know, I, I think there's something very telling about the fact that this came out about a month after Baby Driver. It feels like this was, these two were sort of tent poles in the summer of playlist movies where it's not quite, you know, you're not contracting artists to make songs for this movie. The creative force behind this movie is just picking songs that they want to put together into a playlist, essentially. Something that if you're not watching the movie, if you have the sound down on the movie, you could put this on Spotify and still follow along with the beats of the movie. Like, in fact, later on, you know, because initially I thought this was a very 80s playlist or at least, you know, something that someone in the 80s would listen to. But then later on, you know, pausing it on on Amazon Prime and then seeing the X-ray come up and it was a Marilyn Manson song. One, I realized, okay, that must be David Leach's problem. That's, you know, he's bringing that equation into his movies. But also, I didn't mind it because it, you know, it was a jigsaw puzzle piece that fit in with the rest of the puzzle. It had the same mood. It had the same feel as as something that would belong in the 80s synth community. Yeah, no, I thought they did a terrific job with the music in this movie. Wait, when when was there a Marilyn Manson song? Oh, I can't wait to watch it a third time. <laughs> oh, jeepers. I want to say when Percival meets Lorraine at the bar. When he's like, I found out who Satchel is. You know, I've got the watch. Mm-hmm. Or I've got the list. Come meet me at the bar. And I think they go to that kind of hedonistic bar. You know, a lot of like performers and stuff like that. Uh, I believe Marilyn Manson is oh. playing during that moment. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because because you're right. And that's kind of an Easter egg too because who other than you guys <laughs> figured that out? <laughs> I wish this show existed before I watched this movie so that I could enjoy this movie more. So I hope we're doing a service for other people. Yeah, you're welcome, people. Although if there's an implication that this show is uh, pro Marilyn Manson, we are not. Uh, just throwing that out there. <laughs> no, that guy can eat shit. But again, uh, Sam Hargrave playing Gascoin gets hit by a car and the driver of that car is KGB agent Bakhtin, uh, or Bakhtin, I think. And he shoots Gascoin, but not after saying something about like Satchel, like, oh, Satchel gave you up. And he uh, shoots 
Gascoin, Gascoin's body goes into the river and we get a water cut from icy river to ice bath. As we go, we see Lorraine Broughton, right? Charlie Saren herself. She's taking an ice bath. She gets out of it. Her back is beat to shit. We see that it's like covered in bruises. And we're like, man, what happened to her? We get some uh, lower third year telling us that we are now 10 days later. It's a flash forward. As to the intrigue of what the fuck happened to Lorraine Broad, and we're going to start getting into it. I love that scene because Charlize Theron on her own can be very icy, like her blue eyes being so blonde and tall and so, she can be very icy. And they really use that to their advantage in this movie. She is dressed in either white or black the entire time. And everything about her is cold. The only time that she's wearing something that is not white or black or or something in that range is at the end when she's wearing that red coat and she has brunette hair. But other than that, she's always portrayed as cold or icy. She's I, I love that so much. I think they did such a good job with that. I'm going to say this a lot through this episode, or maybe I'll, I'll try to temper how much I say this. I think this movie is David Leach's entry into the conversation of being sort of an action auteur. You know, just going off of the two movies we've done so far in the past few weeks, we've done John Wick and now we've done Atomic Blonde. They both have the same feel. They're both able to create the same atmosphere. Even the way these two movies start, they're really good at starting from the end and getting you interested in what the story is leading up to that. You know, John Wick starts with John Wick crashing his, his Suburban. He's beat to shit. He, you know, he just got done with his fight with the, with the Russian underworld. This one's starting. Charlize Theron has bruises that have been healing for the past nine days. And so we need to find out what happened to those, you know, how did she get those bruises? What has happened for the past 10 days? Credit to David Leach. He knows how to start a movie. But Lorraine Broughton, she's taking an ice bath and she pours uh, some vodka, some Stoli. And I know y'all that like uh, drinking straight vodka and being in an ice bath is not like, ooh, yes, comfortable. But <laughs> sitting in my bed watching just someone, in my mind, take a bath and have a cocktail. I'm like, oh, that seems so nice right now. That's that just all I seems... want right now. Right now, I'm like, do we have some <laughs> vodka? I know we do. <laughs> but it's flavored vodka because I could never just straight vodka like that. No. It's negotiating the terms of this relaxation because it's like, all right, I want to be at that point of relaxation comfort. Do I have to take the all ice bath? Okay, fine. Do I have to sit on a marble tub with no towel or support and just let my cheeks freeze up against the, the marble? Okay, fine. I still want that view of Big Ben. I still want to enjoy my time. Yeah, it really is like missing the point. Like at the end of Blade Runner 2049, you see uh, Ryan Gosling's character lay down in the snow, maybe to die. And being in these like Texas temperatures, like, I bet that feels nice. It's like, Matt has been <laughs> yeah. shot several times. I mean, she is doing it to heal, right? Like she is finally getting some time to herself to tender her wounds. So she's doing it because she knows it'll help her. So, you know. Punch Man wants to thank one of our sponsors tonight, the healing power of vodka. Ice, Mac, ice. It's the ice. By the way, if you're a fan of fake ice cubes, this is the movie for you. <laughs> like what's, <laughs> just look at the ice cubes. As, I, I promised myself I wouldn't point this out because who gives a shit? But the ice cubes in the bathtub, right? You don't want to actually put Charlize Theron in an ice bath. She's just an actor. And the, the ice cubes in the tub are like too perfect. The, each one of them is like a perfect little like rounded cube. It's aesthetically very pleasing in a weird way. Well, you pointed it out while we were watching this movie, and then that's all I could look at. They were not rounded. They were cubed. But yeah, now I'm, I will be watching movies being like, is that, is that a fake ice cube? I got to ask Mac. This feels like one of those marriage strategy devices, because make no mistake, this is also Charlize Theron nude in a bathtub. 
And of course, Mac is sitting next to his frail wife. He's like, uh, look at those ice cubes. Oh, wow. Are those, are those real ice cubes? What's going on there? Ah, uh, okay, okay, okay. Man, I hadn't caught on. I hadn't caught on. Mac, no mistake. You were looking at the... <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, Mac, no mistake is pretty good. I think this is more like a Punch Mountain device where now when I watch a movie, like there's the dumbest character. I'm like, what did that character learn? Or I'm like <laughs> looking for like, is there something I can make fun of here? <sighs> Just trying to come up with something. But make no mistake. I mean, this scene, you know, it's there to grab you. And one of the things it uses to grab you is Charlie's Theron's nudity. You know, there's a moment where she's standing nude in front of a mirror. We see her backside. And, and I'm a little concerned at the start of this movie. But then we see the producer credit. Charlie's Theron is one of the producers on this movie. I feel a huge sigh of relief when I see that the same way I did when I saw Margot Robbie's name on Birds of Prey, because with that movie, it was a character who had already been a little exploitative, you know, let's get Harley Quinn and some short shorts and some crop tops, you know, that kind of thing. But to know that Margot Robbie is a guiding hand in the production of Birds of Prey, that was a relief to know that Charlize Theron is standing naked in a movie that she's producing. That's her call. And so once that call is made, I'm willing to follow her and follow the movie anywhere because I trust her decisions when making this movie. But something else I did want to ask. So while we're seeing the credits, we also see that this movie is based on a graphic novel. It's based on a graphic novel called The Coldest City, put out by Oni Press, uh, written by Anthony Johnston and uh, art by Sam Hart. Question for the panel. Have either of you read this series? Mac, have you read it? No, I have not, but I, I, I'm going to quickly write that wrong because I, I already ordered the books. Is that what came in the mail today? Yeah, it did. One of them, because there's uh, <laughs> The Coldest City and then there's a prequel book. And so I'll read them and I'll let you know how they are for the inventory episode. Also, when I was trying to find out like where in a movie a specific piece of dialogue happened, I found the script online and the script noticeably different. So I also, mm -hmm. that's another thing I want to do for the inventory episode. I want to read the script and let you know how that goes. Uh, but Lorraine Broughton is brought in for a debriefing. Ugh. What happened over those past 10 days? We're about to get into it. But she's being debriefed by a superior British officer, played by Toby Jones, and then a CIA, American intelligence agent, played by John Goodman. Which, real quick, John Goodman and Toby Jones, I mean, they're character actors. They're in a lot of movies. And they aren't necessarily, their presence does not necessarily ensure quality. But honestly, like, having Toby Jones and John Goodman in a scene together you know every scene that they're in is going to be competent. Because Toby Jones, yes, he is a pumpkin turned into a human, but he is definitely also one of our greatest character actors. Like, he's he, there's that meme for a while. He always understands the assignment. You know what I mean? The last time, and this is about John Goodman, not about good old Toby. Um, the last time I saw John Goodman in something was in, uh, you're watching The Righteous Gemstones. And both Mac and I would say things like, ooh, is... John Goodman okay because he looked like he'd lost like a little too much weight. So seeing him in this, he looks really good. Like I'm, he he looks healthy and and good. That was one of the thoughts I had looking at him this time around. But once John Goodman comes in, he of course is playing CIA agent Emmett Kersfeld. Uh, Lorraine Broughton, Lorraine requested he be removed from the room, and that request is immediately denied. And they have this exchange. Would it make you more comfortable? I could stand behind the mirror with everybody else. But it's a little crowded back there. Cocksucker. What did you say? I didn't say anything. Sorry. Did you say something, Moran? Did you hear me say something? I thought you said something. What did she say? What? <laughs> what? 
do you want to play the tape back? I gotta say, uh, panel, that this is a very sick alpha move. Already right from the beginning, she gets to slip in a cocksucker, she gets to call him a name, but then to put him on the spot where, like, he's such a crybaby about it, it's like, you called me a name! And she's just like, do you want to play the tape back? Do you really want to relitigate this thing and waste everybody in this room's time so we can hear... Here, maybe somebody called you a cocksucker. Oh, I love this. Uh, right from the beginning, I love the position this puts them, the two of them in. Oh, man. I can't wait to pull that in a meeting or something. We're, we're no, recording don't, on Zoom. Don't. Oh, but I got to now. I want to be so alpha. No, you you don't. <laughs> no, because they have you recorded like on video where it's just yeah. like, cocksucker. <laughs> like, we saw you say it. Your mouth is moving. Like, they'll put it in slow motion. Can, can Zoom do that? Oh, man. Your tongue sucks. is pressing against your cheek. It's not <laughs> It's not subtle. You're making a hand motion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Maybe next time. But Gray and Kurtz felt are like, we need to start this debriefing. So, Lorraine, where's she going to start? Max, she's going to start from the start, right after the murder of Gascoigne. Lorraine is enlisted to recover the list, which is microfilm containing the identities of every active intelligence agent in Berlin. MI6 believes the list is hidden in the watch Bacton stole from Gascoigne before his murder, and Lorraine is tasked with locating David Percival, played by James McAvoy, an MI6 agent embedded in Berlin who plays by his own rules. We meet Percival in East Berlin, connecting with a German Stasi agent nicknamed Spyglass, played by Eddie Marsan, who claims to have passed along the list to Gascoigne prior to his murder, but that's okay, Spyglass has the list memorized. Percival is also supposed to pick up Lorraine at the airport, but she is intercepted by KGB agents instead. Not to worry, though, because Lorraine packed her spikiest heels for the trip. So the list here, this is our MacGuffin for the movie. And with a lot of MacGuffins, you know, you just kind of accept it and move on. If you want to sit there and write a treatise like, okay, wait, how do all the Infinity Stones work to, you know, just it doesn't matter. Okay, just, you know, that's what the bad guy wants. The good guy wants to stop him. Let's keep going. But this list, I do got to spend a minute on it because. I, it still doesn't make complete sense to me. So this is a list of every intelligence agent on both sides. So that means like communist uh, intelligence agents and then also possibly what? British, American, and French, like everyone? How does such a list get made? It it just, I know the movie's like, don't think about it. That's just what it is. But what was y'all's take on it? Did you care at all? Like who made this list, et cetera? I didn't care now that you say that, I care a little bit more, but it's not enough to move the needle to actual capital C caring. Honestly, now that you mention it now, it feels almost like a zine that some disaffected German youths put together where they're just like, hey, let's put together of every secret agent you slept with. I'll put together a list of every secret agent I've slept with. We'll pull this into like a slam book and then we'll just have a list of every agent in Berlin. Like I really don't. I don't particularly care about the origins of this, to be honest with you. I just, I like that it exists. I, I like this journey I went on with you guys right now, where I was like, no, I, <laughs> I didn't care. Now I care. Oh, wait, it's a slam book about people getting laid? Now I super care. And you know what? I'm happy with that explanation. I don't need any other explanation. That's what it is. It's a slam book list. I'm, I'm good. I'm good with it. Uh, but we quickly meet the British chief of station for Berlin, David Percival, played by James McAvoy. Let's talk about Jamie Mack. Panel. Well, you guys like James McAvoy? What do you think about this dude? I think he's great in this role. He His style kind of reminded me of Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden with like the shaved head and like the, I think he's wearing a fur coat or just a big coat at one point. Um, oh, I like that Charlize Theron calls him out at some point or, or lets him know. She's like, I'm not buying your whole little, I'm hungover. I just got here. What's going on um, vibe, which is a really good way of 
of describing his whole attitude. I think he does a really good job of of being this bad guy. I don't know how many movies I've seen James McAvoy be a bad guy in, so that's kind of interesting to me too. Well, let me back it up. And I do agree with everything you said about James McAvoy in this movie, but overall, if you see that James McAvoy is going to be in a movie, does that affect your interest level in a film or TV project? A little bit, I think. Yeah, no, I'll go, oh, that guy, okay. It, it, it will make me curious as to, yeah, I'll say yes. I think it, it does uh, pique my interest a little bit. Yeah, I think for me, he's earned a little bit of cachet. I think, you know, whatever project he's doing, at least you can get the sense that that project's not going to be boring. Yes. Like, I don't get the sense he collects paychecks, you know, the X-Men movies notwithstanding. But even then, he was kind of perfect for a young Charles Xavier. Like, he couldn't, he couldn't not take that paycheck. But as far as this movie itself goes, I think he fits in perfectly because, you know, like you said, he comes off, you know, with the big fur coat, the shaved head, very much like Tyler Durden. I made a joke to myself that didn't land because the dots didn't connect where I looked at him. I was like, someone's been train spotting. Train spotting <laughs> takes place years later in Scotland. But like, you know, because it's James McAvoy, because he's playing this kind of, you know, constantly hungover, forgetful oaf. It does come across as phony. And I think casting him in that role does help you not trust him in this role, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, he's definitely played some like kind of sleazy characters before. But honestly, like James McAvoy for a while, it's like I liked him, but he didn't necessarily like move the needle on the movie for me. And then I saw Split. I didn't necessarily like love that movie, but James McAvoy will fucking capital G go for it. Like mm-hmm. he, as an actor, is. One of these dudes who's like, you know, this movie may be boring, but I won't be. And mm. I mean, he's not like Nicolas Cage level of of not boring, but he is a dude who definitely will go for it. So I don't think like, you know, his portrayal of Percival here is necessarily like, oh, he was robbed of an Academy Award or whatever. But I think he's definitely super solid in, in this film. Split is a perfect example. Like people went bananas for that movie because they weren't expecting to go bananas for that movie. And then I don't think people realize... of that credit goes to James McAvoy. People were coming out of that theater being like, they made a sequel to Unbreakable. And it's like, listen to yourselves. Are you really that excited? (laughs) It's it's a James McAvoy vehicle. Be excited for a James McAvoy vehicle. Uh, uh, That's another thing I can't wait to use in a meeting. I'm I'm just here to collect things to say in meetings. Uh, Listen to yourselves. I love that. Oh, good. I'm glad. So we, we catch up with David Percival. He's... He's basically opened up his own storefront. He's running a bazaar. He's trading goods for information, goods for money. Uh, at one point, some punk comes up and gives him illicit photographs. And so uh, David Percival says, oh, oh, this is worth a bottle of Jack Daniels. This is straight from, from uh, the Virgin Mary's tit. And like, hey, man, I get it. If this is like an illegal good, if this is like representative of the West and all of its possibilities, oh, my God, we could have budget whiskey. That's all fine and good, but this is not the last time Jack Daniels appears in this movie, and I'm just going to say that now. The more we see it, the more upset I get. Yeah. Again, I'm going to watch out for that the third time I watch this movie because that is interesting, uh, him saying that line, and then it's like, hey, it's actually not stripper or tit. It, it, it really isn't. <laughs> yeah, it does make me wonder if there was some sort of movie tie-in. Like, when you see Atomic Blonde in theaters this summer, raise your fist, but also raise a glass of Jack or something. <laughs> You were gonna say raise your tit. <laughs> nope. Which, fine. Nope, it's I fine. sure was not. Nope, not gonna say that. <laughs> Got my boob scotch. <laughs> oh wow! Shout out Bob Log the third. But this is where uh, David Percival is going to meet up with Spyglass. 
He's going to trade him some Jack Daniels and some Jordash, and he's going to be like, all right, give me that list. But then Spyglass is going to reveal, I gave it to Gascoigne last night. If you don't have it, that's not my problem. You still got to get me across. So this is going to present us with kind of the, the main thrust of this movie. You know, we're doing this all to preserve Spyglass and make sure that we get his information from him. But also in the background, I'll say this as well. Um, we are going to catch a brief glimpse of a character named Merkel, who is going to, we'll see him later in the movie. He's played by Bill Skarsgård, who I was not expecting to see in this movie. What an amazing July and August for Bill Skarsgård, 2017. He does this movie three weeks later. He's Pennywise. Like, man, agent of the year that year. <laughs> I don't know. Agent of the year. Hey, I'm going to get you a bit role in Atomic Blonde, and then you get to be a sewer clown. <laughs> Although you want to talk about trailers, that first uh, It trailer, like the one with Bill Skarsgård, I remember after seeing that trailer being like, nope, not going to see that. <laughs> that looks fucking freaky. And then after I saw it, I was like, oh, I love these indistinguishable kid characters. Five is not enough. 20, 35, please <laughs> have them all blend together. But in a move you can appreciate, Jimena, Broughton's superiors mentioned that Parsifal's basically gone feral. <laughs> that he is now kind of set up shop. In fact, he goes on a rant later about how much he loves the weird sort of wild, wild west of, of Berlin. The fact that he's dealing in all this contraband. But Lorraine arrives in West Berlin, and she's immediately picked up by these two obvious spies who are like, oh, oh please, uh, Parsifal said we need to drive you. And they're like in the car for like five seconds. And then the guy driving the car is like, hey, you remember this other guy, right? You probably fought each other at some point. And so we quickly realized that these dudes in the car, yeah, are not Lorraine's friends. They're probably going to take her somewhere and do something bad. So how does Lorraine react to this? Well, she's going to pull off her spiked high heel and she's going to jam it right into one of the guy's larynxes. And, and she's going to go to town on him. She's going to take care of the driver as well. Uh, this is going to be a car fight. I do love a good close quarters fight. That's right. It's our first action set piece that we'll call Otto Kampf, which is German for car fight, I believe. It's, I love this scene, but you know what? Now that you brought up the shoe, I realized that the shoe was red. It's the only other time mm -hmm. she wears something red. But the way, and this is something that, again, I don't know in other uh, female-led action movies, if I've noticed this, but the way that she acts on her face, the way that the expressions that she makes when she's doing something with force, it seems like she's really fucking going for it. Like when she grabs that shoe and just the look on her face is just, I don't know. Uh, I i don't think I've noticed that in another movie as much as I did in this movie. I like, I'm waiting for it. I'm bracing myself for whatever she's about to do because <laughs> she's going to fuck something up. This movie excels at fatigue. Yes. This movie excels at spent energy. I mean, we'll see it later in the movie. It's going to be a centerpiece of this movie. But for the moment right now, yeah, exactly. You know, you do get the sense that she is fighting for her life. You know, I'm a little confused as to whether or not she knew from, the, from Jump Street that these guys were no good. And she was just along for the ride to see what kind of information she could get out of them. Or if she truly was tricked into thinking that Percival was a little bit late. And so this is the ride. But in that moment, something else that Charlize is very good about or something else that this movie is very good about is thinking on the fly where you can almost see the machinations of the plan having to call an audible, you know, on Charlize's face. She's sizing up the car. She makes her move. Uh, this is a great introduction to what Charlize is capable of doing action-wise. Yeah. There's a, a handful of things, of gestures that in my mind stand out as iconic because I can replay them in my head kind of like. One of the famous scenes that stands out in my mind is uh, in Terminator 2, 
when uh, Sarah Connor does that little skip when she's in jail and she has, I think, the the police baton. Yeah. Oh, well, she's in a mental health facility. But yeah, that um, I don't know if it's the baton from the uh, security guard or whatever, the orderly, or if it's half of a broken mop handle. But yeah, she definitely has yeah. a little stick that she does a little jaunty flip with. Whenever I see that movie, I'm waiting for that little part. And I'm like, oh, here comes the little skip. I have pieces like that for this movie. The first one is in that car fight when she grabs the seatbelt just with one hit. She doesn't even buckle it, I don't think. She just like holds on to it because she knows that that car is about to flip. I'm like, oh, here comes the seatbelt. <laughs> she grips it like she's about to climb the rope in gym class. Yes. Like it is just, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know this is the sturdiest piece of this car in about five seconds. Right. I love that. Yeah, this scene definitely has some really good car crunching too, cars smashing into each other. There's also a really cool shot. When Parsifal does arrive on the scene, the car skids to a stop and like without missing a beat, the door opens and James McAvoy kind of busts out of it. And then when he approaches the car, which is now upside down, the first thing Lorraine Broughton does is she shoots at him with the gun and he dodges. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm Parsifal and I brought your shoe. I just like that that's her first encounter. She's still in the moment with those killer be killed instincts. But real quick, when she gets in the car... The driver of this car, who I think is just credited as Le Chauffeur, mm-hmm. he yeah. says something like, oh, you might remember the guy I'm with, which in the moment I was like, oh, probably from some other case, but it could be a strong hint that this is not Lorraine's first time in Berlin. But after that set piece, Parsifal picks up Lorraine and takes her to her hotel. Yes, but meanwhile, back in East Berlin, a bunch of teens with information are shaken down by KGB boss Alexander Bremovich, played by Roland Moeller who wants to find Spyglass and the list. Lorraine visits the mysterious watchmaker, played by Till Schweiger, a secret operative who handles the buying and selling of intelligence, who ultimately provides her with another contact in East Berlin besides Percival. Lorraine investigates Gascoigne's already ransacked apartment. Supposedly, she's looking for clues into the identity of the mysterious traitor Satchel, but is set up by Percival, who alerts the German police of her presence. Lorraine takes care of the officers and escapes in another action set piece we'll call... Sick der Verhaftung Widersetz, which, uh, David, my German is not good, but I believe that means resisting arrest. After beating up the police, Lorraine Broughton heads back to her hotel, which is made out of neon, for a quick shower and change, and heads out for a chance encounter with Brimovich. However, encounter is interrupted by in-over-her-head French agent Delphine LaSalle, played by Sophia Butella. So Percival, whenever they get done beating up those dudes in the car, he sticks one of them in his trunk, Le Chauffeur. And he drops him off at, I guess, I don't know if it's a Soviet embassy or East German embassy, but he's like, yeah, tell that fucker Bremovich. And so Percival tells us about Bremovich, that he's basically a uh, big swinging communist dick here in East Berlin. And in case you don't believe that he's an asshole here, we're going to get a scene of him. Uh, it's, it's basically the people he picked up from Percival's contraband party the other night. And Bremovich like grabs a boom box and he's, he presses the button and it's 99 loof balloons. He's like, you guys like dancing, right? Okay, dance for me, dance, you dance. And of course, this poor East German kid, he's going to dance because, uh, you know, he's being threatened by this KGB agent. But man, if a KGB agent was like, dance, dance, I would just like put the smallest amount of like hip shaking effort into it. But this fucking dude is like, all right, I guess. And he gets down on the ground. He starts break dancing, <laughs> like just fucking spinning on some cardboard. It's like, man, you really are just trying to make his KGB agent mad. Or maybe he's trying to impress him. Maybe in his mind, he's like, this is my chance. This is my chance to show this guy what freedom looks like. (laughs) And like, I'm going to give him the best dance I can. And he's going to let me go. He's going to give me back my skateboard and let me go. But no, the exact opposite happens. Or, or 
this kid is like, this guy has seen me dance before. And he knows that if I try and pull some sort of just little shimmy, he's he's going to hurt me worse than he probably is already going to hurt me. So I got to do that move that he knows that I do. Because I feel like he did the move, but like he kind of fucked it up at the end. I think he was like, this, you mean this move? And he did his thing. So it could be any of those three, I think. So you are the one they called Cool Rodney. <laughs> Not very cool dancing, though. Exactly. He's like, he wasn't Cool Rodney. I can't not Cool Rodney. But man, I'll tell you what. This is a good introduction to Bremovich. He brings the boombox, plays 99 Luff Balloons. He's sort of fidgeting with the skateboard. This is a recipe for JFCs. And the recipe uh, came out perfect on this one. Like, I knew it from the get-go. Oh, that, that kid who's breakdancing is about to lose some teeth and cheekbones in a few minutes. Well done. Well done by the movie on this one. In fact, I think when we were watching this, I mean, I think you said something like, oh, God, please don't hit him with a skateboard. He's not going to hit him with a skateboard. And the answer is, of course, he's going to hit him with a skateboard. <laughs> and he doesn't hit him just once. He definitely hits him a Jesus fucking Christ amount of times. Yeah. Oh, man. GFCs, huh? I should say that around my kid instead. How many times are you burning your hand? <laughs> Mentally all day long. Oh, geez, like Cape Fear. And we also see Lorraine's West Berlin Hotel. And like I mentioned, it is like the neon hotel where I can't imagine you get any sleep just because the amount of neon lighting in it. But again, this movie is like soaking us up in this kind of like hyper real version of the 80s aesthetic. And as Amina said, I'm here for it. I'm also going to say this is, you know, stuff like this is the graphic novel aspect of the movie coming through. I think seeing that title card at the very beginning helped me calibrate what I was expecting to see out of this movie. And this movie does not disappoint. It is visually striking. But in this moment, we see Lorraine. She's in her new hotel. She's taking another ice bath. This, you know, this linearly, this is the one before the one 10 days later. But I got a question. Do you think the hotel is mad about the amount of ice she's taking? Or do you think they just expect like, oh, it's some rich asshole. Of course, they're going to inconvenience us in some way. Either they're going to ask for towels they don't need or they're just going to take over the ice machine in the hallway. Well, you, you got to remember, those are fake ice cubes. So they're probably just in some vase as decorations and she's pouring them into the tub. So after this ice bath, Percival is in her room, but she doesn't realize, of course, that it's Percival. She just knows that someone's in the room and she immediately uh, tries to hit him with a liquor bottle. So the first two times that Percival and Lorraine have met, she's tried to hit him. And I have to say, I wish they just kept going with this. I wish every scene that they were in together, it was Percival surprises Lorraine and she like uh, tries to attack him. I, they don't keep that running gag going because this is not a comedy, but whatever. I don't know if they go down to the bar here or if it's later, but at some point they're having a conversation. And Percival brings up Spyglass, their asset who has the list memorized. Lorraine asks Percival if he's met Spyglass and Percival says no, even though we've fucking seen them talking. What is going on here? Is this movie telling us that we can't trust David Percival? I really need to trust everybody I see on the screen. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Like, all joking aside, I really don't do good with spy movies. I know I said that at the top of the show, but like starting to to feel the duplicitous nature of David Percival, knowing that I can't trust him, knowing that it's a spy movie, I can't trust anybody. We've already had the the car fight where I initially thought one of the people in the car was Brevich. That is wrong. I am an unreliable narrator for this movie, and I'm not even in the movie. I, I'm I'm shocked, David. I, I didn't know that you you were not uh, spylicious. <laughs> oh, oh no, I'm uh, gosh, what is it? A spy intolerant. I, I've got a real. Uh, I don't have the spy stomach. Wow, I'm I'm learning this about you. 
But Lorraine goes to mysterious watchmaker and orders a watch. And he says he'll have it ready the next day. And of course, it's German character actor Till Schweiger. And uh, none of this makes any sense, but it's one of those things you're like, well, I bet this will make sense later. Well, half and half, because in fact, if we can play the audio of the encounter with Lorraine and the watchmaker. I'd like to purchase a watch. I need access to a network in East Berlin. Come back tomorrow before closing. So this movie does this with every interaction with the watchmaker. Someone walks in. They give them some watch talk, and then they immediately follow it up with the thing they're actually saying. Why bother with the code talk then? Just going to be like, hey, you're the guy who could get me a contact in East Berlin. I need a contact. And then if someone walks in, be like, oh, these swatches are lovely. You know, that like, do that. But like, it, I don't know. That was the, maybe the clunkiest part of the movie. I'll say that as a compliment because there's not a lot of clunky parts of this movie. But that was probably the clunkiest part of the movie for me. So, of course, throughout this movie, we're bouncing back and forth to the story as it unfolds. And then we flash forward again to like the debriefing where the story as it unfolds is being told by Lorraine to Gray and Kurtzfeld. But somewhere here, we learn that Lorraine has a second objective, not just to recover Spyglass or the list or whatever, but also look out for Satchel, this double agent. Oh, no. Spy movies are already confusing. And now we know that one of these people is a double agent. Oh, no. Is it is it true that we really can trust no one? No, Mac, you can't trust anybody. Uh, I can't even trust this movie because it's funny you say that. I didn't even consider that Satchel would be someone we've already met in this movie. I was just like, all right, I guess I've got to consider another spy. So I'm I'm already pretty dumb with this movie. Well, we go from that flashback to Lorraine breaking into Gascoigne's apartment. We go inside, it's already been ransacked, it's already been turned upside down, so we don't really know what else she's looking for, and neither uh, do the agents that are debriefing her. But we do get something important in this moment where Lorraine's in the apartment, she looks out the window, she sees the German police coming, and she has a line to the effect of like, oh, I guess Percival and I have different ideas of what collaboration means. This is where it clicked into place for me, Not maybe not on the first viewing, but on the second viewing, it's like, oh, okay. Percival is trying to impede Lorraine's progress somehow. Okay, they're not going to be in cahoots. I'll say this as as a writer, you know, we're just a few moments removed from Lorraine and Percival's interaction in Lorraine's hotel room where Lorraine almost hits uh, Percival with a liquor bottle or does hit him with a liquor bottle. There's almost a, a flirtation between the two of them where she throws Percival on the bed, she straddles him and, and you know, she, they're getting information from each other. So... This movie very easily could have gone down that fork in the road and been this sort of flirty, will they or won't they spy romance. So to have Percival flip on her immediately and for Lorraine to know it, that was very helpful for me as a dullard. I liked that, yeah. At one point, I was kind of hopeful, like, oh, is this going to be cute? With Is it going to be sexy? In that voice. Cartman. <laughs> Like a Cartman. <laughs> but then, yeah, I'm glad that it didn't go that way. I'm glad that it it just chose something more unexpected. Mm-hmm. Especially for a movie that has a lot riding on the stigma of being a female action movie. Yes. Where you don't want to walk into a romance that feels forced. So this was, you know, it, it was touch and go for a little bit there. So for Percival to just be an out and out shit, that was very helpful. Yeah, I liked it. It was fun. So when Gascoigne is first brought up to Lorraine, they're like, oh, are you familiar with Gascoigne? She's like, oh, I know enough to say hello. And then later, I think it's part of a dream sequence, we get an image of Gascoigne from Lorraine's perspective, and they're in bed together. So this idea that because they slept together once, you know, at least once, that just the implication that like maybe Gascoigne means something more 
to Lorraine than just like someone she works with on occasion. But as she is going through Gascoigne's apartment, she finds a picture of Gascoigne and Parsifal. Like, you know, it's like a hunting photo of them like holding up rabbits together. And I think, I'm not sure if Parsifal out and out said something like, oh, I don't know, I'm not too familiar with Gascoigne. But they definitely are like closer friends than Parsifal has let on. But here comes the Berlin police. And that means Lorraine's got to basically kick all of their fucking asses. And how's she going to do it? You know, she's not dressed for it, as she points out later that <laughs> to Grant Kurtzfeld that she would have worn something different. But David, you know this about me. What's something I love to see in fight scenes? Oh, gosh. Among other things, I think you like to see people explore the studio space. Ooh, I do love it when people use their environments. <laughs> and so she's like looking around the apartment, basically like, okay, what MacGyver shit can I pull here? And she like, again, as you mentioned, him, she cranks up the music to, you know, just, I don't know, cover the noise for the neighbors or just, you know, make it a little bit more confusing for the invading police. But it is father figure, which the fact that uh, she's kicking their ass to, I will be your father. Pretty great. And yeah, sure enough, she starts kicking these dudes ass with the length of rope. At one moment, she like ropes one of these police officers and yanks on the rope to where he falls backwards. And he falls backwards with such velocity that his legs kick out from underneath him and he kicks another police officer. It was fucking cool as hell. It's my first mark out moment. I got to talk about my second Sarah Connor Skippy moment for me in this movie is when she's in the middle of two dudes and she like turns to one and I don't know what it is that she's doing with the rope, but she like whips one and then the other, like she does this to the two dudes, but with that rope that I think is yellow, just... That's the other moment where I'm like waiting for her to do it. There's, it's just such a, that movement of her body stands out to me and it, it's very exciting. Yeah, she's great in this. This this whole fight is great. I'm usually, I'm, I'm kind of reticent to give out mark out moments during sustained action sequences. I usually just think, I'm usually just generally impressed by the action sequences, especially in this movie. You know, Charlize did her homework on this one. She really trained. It's all very believable, but I also did mark out in that moment where, she pulls the guy's feet out from under him, and he kicks another guy. It's just that extra kind of gear. Uh, that was my first markout moment. But this fight is full of excellent stuff. She does use the refrigerator at one point to smack a guy down. She does get a nightstick from one of the officers and goes three on one in the kitchen with, with a bunch of dudes. This is terrific. God, let's watch it again. <laughs> Stop me. Yeah, Shirley Theron is an action beast. I mean, it's funny because I was... I did what I usually do, like with the um, Book of Eli, like looked up Denzel Washington on IMDb. And I was like, all right, when did he become like this awesome fighter? And if you look at her IMDb, I mean, the first thing that I remember seeing Charlie Theron in was Two Days in the Valley. She doesn't necessarily, she's not like Bruce Lee in that movie, but I think there is a fight scene in it. So, you know, if I remember correctly, you know, it's not anywhere near like um, Atomic Blonde levels, but at the same time, it's something she's always been like willing to do. Uh, which is uh, try to kick someone's ass on camera. But Lorraine does escape after this awesome fight scene and she kills no police officers. I think that was the other part of it is she didn't want to kill anybody. And then what's she going to do? Uh, she needs to kick back and go to a bar. And oh, we here we meet one of the most important characters in the movie, bisexual lighting, which I did not know this was a thing. But apparently if you have two different kinds of lighting, maybe like blue or red in a certain scene and a character is lit with them, that means implies that that character is bisexual. And the example I was shown when this was being described was this movie. So there you okay. go. I don't know if this is a snake eating its own tail or if this is actually something that happens in a lot of other movies. But, I, you know, because I haven't seen I don't remember any other examples, but but this is one of them. 
Yeah, it makes me curious. When did that start? Like, that's a thing I'm going to go look up is when did that become a thing? Well, now I'm I'm getting on my big book of bisexuals throughout <laughs> cinema. And, like, I'm trying to remember, like, did I see bisexual lighting in Smokey and the Bandit? No, I didn't. Did I see it in North by Northwest? No, like. You know, it, this it, this feels like a, a very recent decision. Yeah, is this something Gen Z came up with? And then, like, did it start out as a Gen Z idea on Reddit and then it turned into a real thing? Who knows? Now I'm thinking it's probably like three years old. But it's also, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, give credit to David Leach on this one as well. Because, like I said, you know, he is trying to make this movie art in its own way. So to try that, you know, to tinker with lighting styles and to see what works and what doesn't. I'm I'm very high on on a lot of the decisions in this movie, and and I think the lighting is is just another one of those. And at this bar, uh, Lorraine is approached by Brimovich, and after some back and forth dialogue, sensing that Lorraine is being bothered by this guy, in comes Sophia Butello playing Delphine, a French intelligence agent who's like, uh, "Hey, this is my friend. Uh, she's got a boyfriend. Whatever." Just trying to get Brimovich out of there, and Delphine comes up and look. I don't know if this is here. Or if it's later in the movie. And if it's later in the movie, we're going to play the auto here anyway. But Lorraine is like, what are you about, Delphine? And Delphine gives this answer. So what do you do, Delphine? I'm a part-time translator who really wants to be a poet. Maybe a rock star. Which if somebody gives that answer, what an exhausting person. Also, it's like so, it's like, did you read your character description? It's just, it's just so awkward. <laughs> and I think Delphine overall, like, is kind of an annoying character. However... Sophia Butella is so charming that I don't care. Like once I got over this like kind of cringe dialogue from here on out to the movie, and also because a uh, spoiler alert, Delphine does not see the end of this movie. I, I definitely, yeah, I, I liked her in this role. What do you guys think about uh, Delphine and, or Sophia Butella uh, overall? She seems to me, I wish that they made her a little less obviously naive uh, because how did she make it this far She's a little too nice. I mean, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me, it doesn't, well, I guess it takes me out of the movie just a little bit, but I don't mind it. I don't hold that against the movie. Uh, the line later on where she, where Delphine tells Lorraine, oh, your eyes change when you tell the truth. And Lorraine says, oh, I should stop doing that. When she asks, Delphine asks her why, I'm like, what do you mean Why? If you're in this whole like spy game, you know that you need to hide, you need to have a good poker face. So that's the part where I was like, Delphine, how are you here? There's a few things that kind of, that line up a little inconsistently. I, I'm right there with you. I think she came off, her, I think her introduction came off as a little annoying, but they were annoying circumstances where I'm watching this movie, I'm invested in Lorraine trying to extract information from Bremovich, and then here comes Delphine and I'm like, Hey, sexy lady, go away. I'm trying to get information from this Russian guy. Like, much much different than I would have watched, than if I were to watch this like 15 years ago. But, you know, there are inconsistencies, as we learn throughout the movie, where, you know, she knows who Lorraine is. We'll get to that in a little bit. But she doesn't know who Brebovich is, you know, where she feels so comfortable and confident interrupting that conversation. Or maybe she does, but her mission is to break it up. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not too sold on the character of Delphine, but I am sold on Sophia Botella. I think she's very winning in this role. Yeah, I do like that she's in the movie. I like that it is sort of an unexpected, like, you're right, David, like, Lorraine is almost even like, oh, God, you know, what's the side? I don't have time for this. And then she ends up making time for it, and she ends up regretting making time for it because it's just another way in which she gets hurt, which I think 
is effective in this movie. So I, I am glad that Delphine is a thing. Well, you know, in defense of the thing that I criticized a minute ago, you know, to make this the the love interest, for lack, lack of a better word, you know, in a spy movie, you are always going to have romantic entanglements. You are, you are always going to have romance that complicates the mission. So for this to be the romantic complication instead of Percival, instead of Brebovich or any of these other men, I, I, I found that refreshing. Yeah. I was very much okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, we were okay with it. But Under These Hot Bisexual Lights is not the first time Lorraine has noticed Delphine. In fact, Lorraine mentioned to Percival, she's like, this lady keeps following me around. And Percival is very dismissive. He's like, oh, it's probably just because you're hot, which kind of odd for a spy to be like, oh, you've noticed something? It's nothing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> but why would Percival be dismissive of Delphine? I don't know. Think about it for later. But also with Delphine, she is very like naive and kind of clumsy because, yeah, she's obviously a spy. She's obviously part of this spy game, but she doesn't seem very like subtle. Like her way of like getting up to talk to Lorraine was like, Hi, I, I want to talk. You seem like someone that'd be fun to talk to. Like, let's go to a club. Ha, ha, ha. It, but it's this level of like spycraft to be in fucking East and West Berlin when all this shit is going down. It seems like the French wouldn't send like their fresh faced young rookie to go do it. So it seems like a place where you would not have a naive character. And she is a naive character. And so that there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But again, she makes it work because the other thing that you get from Delphine is honesty. I think Delphine is bad at being a spy because she's not a good liar. And she's like maybe the only character in this movie who, you know, she like starts telling Lorraine the truth like later on, you know, pretty much at the, the drop of a head. I say drop of a head, they fuck. But like to have a an honest character in this movie is refreshing and it's nice to have one. Well, you know, I think that is the twist because she is so honest. You know, she is the translator who wants to be a poet or a rock star. You don't think a spy's cover is going to be that. You don't think a spy is going to be a, such a silly heart. So you don't you don't necessarily expect her to be a spy. But then when you find out that she is a spy and you're like, hey, that cover, that was really you, wasn't it? You are the translator who wanted to be a poet or a rock star. You should really work on on a cover, on making up something else entirely. Like, that, that didn't quite land for me. So Lorraine sets out to meet with her contact in the East, the seemingly harmless Merkel, played by professional sewer clown Bill Skarsgård, but Lorraine has to first shake some of Bremovich's men who are following her to the meeting. David is doing some following of his own, trailing Bakhtin to the watchmaker and stealing the list from Bakhtin before Bakhtin can sell it. Meanwhile, Lorraine has a quiet night in with Delphine. So we see our two main characters kind of go back to their bases here. And we see that Percival has a recording device in his cast because he's been wearing a cast on his hand the whole time. I don't, was that ever explained? I guess just to hide this fucking uh, listening device. I think cracking open this cast explained the cast because because up until then it was just like I hope they explain it at some point and even then it was lost on me like I I knew he was listening to recordings he got from it but I was like oh I guess he's so tough he's healed I don't know was it a fake wound like he never actually had a broken yeah. arm is the way I interpreted it right that's my understanding it was there was no broken arm oh, okay. it was just a cast used as a recording device uh, by the way if you want to spend the entire night just replaying every conversation you've had that day you don't need a recording device. Just have the social anxiety that I have. <laughs> God, I sounded like such an idiot in front of Lorraine. Speaking of Lorraine, we see in her room, she's taken apart this watch she got from the watchmaker. And inside, there's coordinates to a street address, I believe, where she can find her new contact, her East Berlin contact. God, what a lot of fucking effort uh, just to get this information to Lorraine. You got to hide it inside the 
uh, watchworks, uh, the clockwork there. It seems it seems complicated till Schweiger. So this is also confusing to me. Maybe not as confusing as other parts of this movie are, but like I'm I'm really surprised at how diverse the watchmaker is because this watch, like you said, you know, you take apart the pieces of it, and one of the gears has the X coordinate on a map. The other gear has the Y coordinate on the map. But then there's also the list in play, which is a watch that just has microfilm. It's not like every name is carved on a gear of the watch. It's just hiding a little piece of microfiche or whatever. So like, what else can these watches do? Like, I'm really, I'm really intrigued by the storage capabilities of these watches. Yeah. Can you hide like a tiny pizza in there? I mean, I bet you could, or like maybe the ingredients for a pizza at least. Oh yeah. Or the coordinates for a little tiny oven where you put all the ingredients to make the tiny pizza. Hold on. Okay, so it's the late 80s. So let's say there's like a car lighter accessory that you plug into your car's <gasps> cigarette lighter. You've got a, pe- a watch the size of a pepperona. And, it, <laughs> and it's got a little bit of dough, a little bit of flour, a little bit of water. You make yourself a little like Ritz cracker pizza on the go. Oh, my God. This is spy tech we need, guys. I've never wanted something more in my life. I mean, we have a child. <laughs> So Lorraine is like, your watch is my command watch. And so she goes to East Berlin to meet up with this contact. But wouldn't you know it, she's picked up instantly by the uh, Stasi, we assume. Oh, no, it's not the Stasi. It's uh, it's the Bremovich's men, you know, part of the, the KGB. And so to shake these dudes, you know, she ends up going into this uh, movie theater at the Alexander Plots. I don't know what that means, but it's some sort of thing with the theater inside yeah it's alexander's plaza that's that's how i'm it's like north cross mall i don't know why that was my point of reference but yeah it's just this little plaza you know it's got uh, a movie theater there they're showing tarkovsky's stalker it's probably got some shops and cafes it also has a facade on it that kids are sliding down now keep in mind we're probably already what 40 50 minutes into an action movie that has really impressed us so far the coolest part of this whole movie is knowing that there's a place I could go and slide down the facade of it. That's all I'd be doing even as an adult. Hell yeah. Or they probably have it like barbed or, you know, spiked uh, some hostile design to keep people off it now. Oh yeah, no homeless can sleep on it. So they just put rocks on it. <laughs> they include rocks to the facade. But Brimovich's men do catch up with Lorraine and they catch up with her like behind the screen of the movie theater. So in the background as they fight, you can see the, the uh, stalker is being projected. And yes, it is another action set piece that we'll call Hinter der Kino Leinwand, which I don't know what that means. The correct translation is behind the cinema screen. Now, is that actually how you properly say that in German? Probably not. But that is where they fight. And I thought this was another cool fight. Yes, this is my other Sarah Connor Skippy moment of the movie, because I was waiting for this when they're fighting behind that scene of the rain. But isn't this the part where she sticks a key in the guy's face? That's right. Yeah, she's going to hit hit some dude with a ladder first. She's going to topple a shelf construction on top of them. She's going to get into a one-on-one fight with this with this guy. And then he uh, buries his her keys in his face. So, like, I'm always looking in action movies for useful things. I know we've been told for years and years, hold on to your car keys like Wolverine. It'll work one day. It was so satisfying to see it work in an action movie. Yes, it was so good. Ah, and it just like stuck in his face like he was made out of, you know, stop motion clay. And uh, it was just ah, so good. Yeah, that's the fucked up part. It's after she stabbed him in the face with the keys, they stuck in his face and he didn't remove them right away. It wasn't until she escaped after he threw her through the movie screen and then he couldn't find her anymore 
He looked around. He's like, I guess the, I'll remove these keys from my face. Yeah, he just liked to, he liked the jangle. Well, he's going about his business. Like, he's, you know, once he gets stabbed in the face, he's like, are you crazy? You know, Brevitz just wants to talk <laughs> instead of doing what I would do, which is time out, time out, time out. Like, hoping that the time out rules are in effect in the world of assassins and spies. And then from then on out, at least the second time that Mac and I watched it together, we started calling that guy Keys. Oh, no, here comes Keys. But Lorraine escapes. She meets with... Bill Skarsgård, her contact, and then she goes to the club to meet up with Delphine. And her and Delphine, they're vibing, right? But here's the thing. It doesn't take long before Delphine's like, yeah, I know who you are, too. I know you're Lorraine Broaden. You're not just some, like, lady I picked up. And then Delphine also reveals that she's French intelligence as well. And But here's the thing. Even though they're here under false identities, the tension is real. They start grinding up against the wall of a bathroom in this club. And then we get a thrust cut. That's right. We go from thrusting against the wall of the bar to not quite a match cut, but like, you know, an edit there that takes that thrust. And now we're now we're in Delphine's room, we assume. Right. I think it was Delphine's room. I think it was. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. So in my little side notes that I keep uh, just breaking down the movie beat by beat, I tongue in cheek put notes break. uh, (laughs) But I'm not going to lie to you. I don't really have a lot of notes. For this section of the movie, I, I seem to be—I seem to have been distracted for a part of it. Well, let's go ahead and talk about this. I, I won't say too much about it, or at least I won't leer too much. But I will say that I am rooting for this sex scene in the same way that I've been very forthright about it with other episodes. Like I am rooting for the return of sexuality in R-rated movies or action movies. So to see a movie go for it with a very, um, very uncomfortable sex scene—you know, sitting with uh, mixed company. But to see this movie go for it, I was very happy for this movie. It wasn't like, it was very weird. I'm, I'm parent age now, so it wasn't titillating for me. It was like I'm walking into the room for my kid's sleep. I was like, uh-oh, what's this all about? And like, that's really yeah. the extent of it. That's so true. I feel like I, I'm that person as well now. Spicy menu, fellas. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we've only, when comparing Atomic Blonde to other movies, you know, at least for me, I've just been kind of mentioning John Wick here and there where we haven't really talked about this movie as it relates to like James Bond. The James Bond franchise, like obviously, you know, there's been different Bonds over the years and a lot of different tones. And with the Daniel Craig movies, you have this more like a kind of a grounded, you know, realistic tone. And I say realistic, you know, you know, to a degree. Because the Pierce Brosnan movie started to get a little, you know, over the top. However, I think this atomic blonde tone where it's like, we're pretty grounded, but we're definitely in kind of a heightened reality. I feel like, honestly, this is like kind of a perfect tone that I, I would not mind seeing like a more stylized James Bond take on. Although, you know, I, I like those Daniel Craig movies so much, I wouldn't change them. So the fact that James Bond has betted like a thousand women, yeah, Lorraine Broad, she needs to catch up. We need her. for If, if there are sequels, and please God let there be. Just let's, <laughs> let's get that body count going in, 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 in both directions. Murder and fucking. Yeah, murder and fucking. Why isn't, why isn't this podcast called Murder and Fucking? Huh? Lots of reasons. Maybe this will just well out. There's a lot of reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe this will become like sort of a Knives Out series where everyone just, where everyone in Hollywood lines up to get their back blown out by Charlize <laughs> Theron. Yes. God damn it. But Delphine, remember, she's a spy. She's not a very good one. And so after they have sex, you know, she's like in a mood or something. And she's like, I know something about Percival. And Lorraine like shushes her. Because she knows that Percival might be listening. Or not even Percival, but just somebody might be listening. But let me ask you this. What Delphine wanted to tell Lorraine, did she ever tell her? Or was Lorraine just like, sure, I assume I already know. What Delphine wanted to tell Lorraine 
That's a really good question. And I, I'm going to I'm gonna answer that question with a question, maybe. Do you think this movie has an unreliable narrator? Do you think there are aspects of this movie that just exist as a story that Lorraine is telling? Oh, interesting. Because right now, when you ask that question of, did Delphine tell Lorraine? I always assumed yes. And I just assumed that we didn't hear it. But now that you ask that question, because Lorraine is telling the story to the people in the room, Toby and uh, and uh, John Goodman, their characters. Gray and Kurtzfeld. So yeah, that's that, they, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Because it's one of those, because you know, I'll be honest with you, I really don't know what information was exchanged there, real or imagined. I just know that for me, it set up the idea that they're being listened to. We need to be careful with the information we're, we're spreading. I'm not quite sure what Delphine, especially having established how naive she is and how green she is compared to everybody else, I don't know what she could bring to the table as far as information that Lorraine could want or need. So watching this movie a second time, I started to have flights of fancy of what parts of this movie are real? What parts of this movie, if any, might be a device of Lorraine's storytelling? I don't know if Delphine outright says it here, but what she was going to say, I'm pretty sure, is that she was working for Percival. And if she did not outright tell it to Lorraine, I think Lorraine pieced it together. I think when she's like, I got something to tell you about Percival. I think that's all Lorraine needed to like hear, really. But yeah, in terms of like being an unreliable narrator, like she's an unreliable debriefer because obviously what she's telling Gray and Kurtzfeld in the present when we flash forward again, you know, that's not necessarily the truth. But in terms of the camera, like what we are seeing, are those the events as they happen? I think so, yes. But I do think that's interesting. I also had that thought. So are you saying that when Lorraine debriefed Delphine, she debriefed the uh, guys in the room about it. <laughs> what is this? I, I'm sorry. I just you said debriefed, and I was like, oh, they're removing the briefs, and I just got excited. I just really wanted to say. Have that. you no dignity? <laughs> no, I, you know I don't. Thank you for being a guest on our show. Actually, I don't think she told them about that because they were like, we see Lorraine uh, getting her grind on, getting her grind on. I don't want to be that person. Who are you, Arsenio Hall? <laughs> we see Lorraine bumping cuties with Delphine. <laughs> And then we cut. Hold on. That's worse. I was going to say bumping uglies, but that doesn't seem fair. And then we cut to modern day, or excuse me, present day, like 10 days later, not modern day. Present day where she's and Gray and, and Kurtzfeld are like, oh, did you make contact with uh, like Delphine? So, you know, a little bit of like kind of a joke there. So I I, I don't think she full on was like, uh, you know, taking her fingers and going like, ear, ear, ear. that's what happened. But Lorraine is off to the Berlin Wall because she's got a meeting. That's right. Lorraine meets with Kurtzweld, who passes along the message that Satchel has been compromised. Lorraine and Percival devise a plan to sneak Spyglass over to the West during a protest march, but Brebovich's men are wise to the plan and set up to take out Spyglass en route. When Lorraine and Merkel reveal their own efforts to keep Spyglass safe, Percival secretly shoots Spyglass when the KGB are unable to. It's time for the centerpiece of the movie, a simulated single-take action set piece we'll call Kule Scheisse which I believe means cool shit, because this scene is cool as fucking shit. It sure is. Lorraine kills an entire building full of KGB agents and then tries her best to drive Spyglass across to the west, but their car gets rammed into a river. Spyglass drowns, and the memorized list dies with him. Guys, are we going to talk about the umbrella scene? We'll we're get there. there. We'll okay. get there. <laughs> I was worried we were glazing no, over no, it. No, no, we're, no. We're, it's, it's in this chunk. But, but first, let's talk about the meeting with Lorraine and Kurtzweld. They're meeting at this sort of outpost overlooking the wall from the west to the east. Kurtzweld gives her some very vague information. You know, it's kind of watch your ass. Hey, they're bringing in the CIA. 
to clean up a lot of this mess. So you're in it upside down. Be very careful. And kind of pokes her with with the newspaper. Like, you know what I'm talking about. And she keeps the newspaper and holds on to it. Well, in that newspaper, there is like a an ad for a hotline. She calls that hotline. And can you recall what was said on that hotline? It was sort of this movie phone recorded message. So in the movie, the first time I watched it, very clearly it said to me, Satchel has been compromised. Click, that's it. So Lorraine now knows whoever Satchel is or was, we now, their identity is out there in the world. So watching this movie the second time, as I do with the captions on, in case I, you know, I want to catch any information that I missed the first time, the Amazon caption said Central has been compromised, which, look, if I'm hearing impaired, there's a big distinction between those two translations. Like, I sure hope the closed captioning didn't get it wrong on this one. Because Satchel being compromised makes a lot more sense for the movie. Yeah, what? Central being compromised makes no sense. Like, what is Central? The Central Intelligence Agency? But, I mean, if you heard Satchel, I'm going to run with that. Because, yeah, Central doesn't uh, track. I'm also crazy hard of hearing. So, like, that could very much be on me. But the first version that I heard made a lot more sense for the movie. So, we previously saw a scene where Bacton was trying to sell the list that he got off Gascoin. Because I guess, again, it's in a watch. He was trying to sell that list to the watchmaker or tell the watchmaker that it was for sale. And then Percival, I think, stabs backed in in the head, face with what? In the head with um, something. A screwdriver? A screwdriver, yes. There's another classic moment where I ask a question out loud and the movie is like, here, stupid. I was like, wait, doesn't Percival have the list? Why doesn't he care about the list? And then like that second, you know, we cut to Percival like looking at the list. I was like, oh, sorry. But yeah, he's looking at the mm-hmm. list and he's like, whoa, so this list is heavy or something like that. So now... Again, we don't really know what Percival wants to do with this list, but there's something on there that uh, uh, caught his interest. There is something on there. There is the identity of every agent in Berlin. There's also the identity of Satchel. So I want to talk about a moment, you know, we're we're kind of cross-cutting back and forth between the actual story and the debriefing, where Lorraine is essentially telling the story of Percival acquiring the list, you know, acquiring the watch from Bacton. And she's telling the story, and I believe it's Gray notifies her that, well, you know, Percival called us that night. And so Lorraine has a real pregnant pause. And then she replies with, well, so no one thought to tell me? This is the first seed that was planted in my mind that the movie has an unreliable narrator. Because this is this is very much in line with like a moment in The Usual Suspects. Where you're watching the character who's being grilled, who we know is telling the lie from the beginning. Or we find out is telling a lie from the beginning. We watch them sort of call an audible on their own story and have to shift midstream. Like, you know, cause my assumption is Percival calls the home office that night, tells them that Satchel is Lorraine. And so they have that information. They they're going into this debriefing with that information. So for them to throw that at Lorraine, but Lorraine to be unfazed by it and pivot back to what she ultimately wants to be the end of her story. I thought this was actually rather brilliant. Whoa. I am so excited to rewatch this movie because that's an awesome way to see it. That that definitely makes it, like you said, yeah, brilliant. That's kind of, and you know, I feel like I unfairly brought a little bit more than I should have to the previous conversation about Lorraine and Delphine. But, you know, going back to the notion that this movie rewards repeat viewings, there is a lot that this movie unlocks by presenting the idea that Lorraine is lying throughout most of, if not all of this movie. Like, it's really quite fascinating to watch it from that perspective. Ooh, yeah, I like that. BRB, I'm going to go uh, start watching this movie again. Uh, we're, we're recording right now. <laughs> too late, too late. I got to go watch it. But the, the framing sequence for this movie is that, you know, debriefing scene, which is happening. Like, that's the most uh, 
in terms of time, that's the most forward event of the film so far. And the point of the debriefing, as far as, you know, uh, I understood at this point, was to be like, this operation, you know, things did not go as planned. What happened? But also, the point of this operation is they don't trust Lorraine. And I thought this was an interesting moment as well. Like, the fact that she's like, you didn't think to tell me? The interesting part of that is like, why didn't Percival tell Lorraine? Uh, Because, you know, at this moment, uh, I think they still think that Lorraine might be Satchel. Like, so... Something that Lorraine, you know, is doing here, and we'll talk more about it later, you know, is she's definitely, uh, like, we already see that she's kind of controlling the narrative when she tells us people. But also, you know, this is kind of a a dangerous game here. Because, look, the movie definitely wants us to think that Percival is Satchel at this point. I mean, does that that track? Do you guys feel the same way? I'll buy that. I I think the movie is spinning a lot of plates, you know, a lot of possible scenarios. And I think one of those is Percival being being Satchel. I wish I could remember what I thought the first time I saw it. Maybe I did think Percival is Satchel the first time I saw it, but yeah, I don't remember. And then obviously the second time I see it, I already have a different idea. So yeah, interesting. But we cut back in time to Berlin and Percival and Lorraine come to an agreement to get Spyglass out. Spyglass is Percival's contact, so he'll handle them. But Lorraine's like, fine, but we're going to use my network uh, run by Suraklan Bill Skarsgård to get him out. And so then we cut to this office building where Bill Skarsgård, I forget, is that Merkel? <laughs> He's got his like network of kids. And honestly, like a surprising amount of like uh, what looks to be, you know, for the 1989 up-to-date technology for East fucking Germany. But don't worry about it. And uh, Eddie Marsan, Spyglass, shows up, which, by the way, the first time I ever saw or remember seeing Eddie Marsan in anything was in Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr., where he kind of played like a, a heavy. He was like a tough constable everything i've seen him in since then he's been like a little bit of a weasel <laughs> just in my mind he's always playing against type because he's like oh tough guy Eddie marson okay but i guess i guess sherlock holmes was the outlier yeah i've i see him and i think you know sad little panda bear dude who could also be a weasel yeah i i spent a good half of the movie going who else does he remind me of like i wasn't so concerned with his career I was concerned with the career of the person he reminded me of. I figured it out in the second viewing. It was Nate from Ted Lasso, but no one cares about that. <laughs> I don't. Wait, Nate from Ted. Wait, the, the equipment guy. Oh, yes. Yeah, I he's kind of got that like weaselly quality, but also like, well, I can't be mad at you. Yeah, like, oh, you're so beta. Wait a minute, you're not though. <laughs> yeah. Are you an alpha? Are you a secret alpha? Spit on me. <laughs> Bid on me, please. <laughs> but Spyglass uh, is not alone. He also brought his family because, of course, if he's going to be smuggled over to the West, he's not going to like leave his family to get uh, murdered by Stasi, KGB, whoever. Uh, but yeah, they they make um, Spyglass like shave and change clothes, so he looks more like a, a funky, cool West Berliner and not uh, an uptight East Berlin guy. This was a fun detail because you know, for someone to be such a good spy, you know, to realize. Oh, they're going to smell you. Like, you smell like East Berlin cleaning products. Here, wash yourself with this. Shave with this. I like this sequence. There is a bit of dialogue here also that, again, will reward you on repeat viewings, where Lorraine is sort of calming Spyglass down, letting him know, hey, I've never lost a package. You know, we'll figure out the situation with your family. We're going to get you across. And they're just having a conversation. And Spyglass says something to the effect of, did Percival tell you I memorized the whole list? And right now, going in cold, watching it for the first time, we suspect, you know, this is kind of where we start to suspect, oh, Percival is Satchel and Spyglass knows that. But watching it on repeat viewings, and and we'll get to 
why it's interesting later on in this episode. But man, again, there's little pieces of this movie that when you watch it again, really hit differently. Like this was for Lorraine to play it cool when during this exchange, kudos to Lorraine. Yes, I also, it being the second time that I've seen it, I also was like, oh, I like this. I like this scene. This is sneaky right here. But the plan is to smuggle Spyglass out in a protest march. However, we see Brimovich's men setting up with sniper rifles. Uh, looks like they are uh, fully aware of this plan. Oh, maybe it was because we just saw a scene where Parsifal met with Brimovich. So we know something is up. And, uh, you know, the fact that they're just going to like slowly march down the street. They're sitting ducks, right? For the sniper rifles. Lorraine's got another plan up her sleeve instead. So as they're going out into the protest, she makes a little whistle and Merkel makes a little whistle or some sort of signal and out come a, a cavalcade of umbrellas. Every one of these protesters has a black umbrella. They're shielding Spyglass as they carry him along. This was fantastic. This was this was a really good fuck you to Percival. Like, I am one step ahead of you, good sir. I enjoy Yes, it. I love that. But it, it did make me wonder about the protesters themselves. I'm like... Is this is this cause lost? Are they even protesting this thing they're supposed to be protesting? I think it connects. Well, because, you know, going back to to Merkel's involvement in this plan, or, you know, I guess, you know, his involvement as Lorraine's contact, when he and Lorraine first meet and she's sort of grilling him on, well, what kind of network do you have? Like, you know, what can you do for me? And Merkel intimates that there's a lot of disaffected youth in Berlin, so I can get together a group of people who could help us out. So the, I think this is just one example. It's almost an act of defiance. It's almost an example of look at what we can do when we put our minds together, when we when we unify. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, David. Man, I'm going to have an even better time the third and fourth time I watch this movie. <laughs> but also, I think at this point, we're like maybe under 48 hours left to go before the Berlin Wall starts to get torn down. So like this protest, like, you know, at some point, like East Berlin is reaching a tipping point. I'm not up on history enough. I don't remember the exact event that uh, they're like, all right, tear it down. We won't shoot you. But we're real close. <laughs> we're real close to that. But Percival, up until this point, has been more than happy to let other people kind of do his dirty work. But with these umbrellas up blocking the KGB snipers, Percival has to take matters in his own hands. And as Lorraine is like walking Spyglass, all of a sudden you hear like, I don't know if you hear that, like muffled, like, uh, you know, compressor a gunshot and, you know, Spyglass like ugh, jerks over like he's been shot. And then we see that, you know, kind of a sly like underneath the arm, underneath the coat, the gunman is Percival. He shoots Spyglass and he pushes Spyglass's family into a cab, you know, ostensibly to go across the border. Now that Spyglass has been shot, uh, I think there's uh, KGB starts to open fire. She's like, Spyglass, we got to get you to safety first and deal with this bleeding. She's like, we have to deal with this sniper now or we're going to be like dealing with it the whole afternoon. So she actually like rushes into the building where she thinks the sniper is. And here we fucking go. Yes, here we fucking go. Jimena, you want to you know, start us off. So walk us through what happens next. And how are you feeling about this? I mean, me watching it a second time, I was like, oh, here it comes. She's going to kick some motherfucking ass. And the best part about it is that it's going to be super long. There's going to be no music. And it is going to be so realistic. And you said earlier that this movie does, there's a lot of fatigue. Like they're really good at showing fatigue and how much energy and strength and just how much it takes. And this scene, that all comes into play. Just, 
unrelenting. Ugh, I just, I, I get excited about it. I'm like, hell yes. Just watching Lorraine kick some ass the way that she does. It, it's like a video game too, because there's all these levels and all these people. And then Spyglass at some point, like finally kicks in. It's like, helps her out. Oh, there's two more. And then I, I just, I don't even, I don't even know what to say. I just love it so much. No, it's, it is a lovable centerpiece of this movie. It's, it's essentially, you know, it comes off as a one shot. It comes off as a one, or there's a few edits here and there. So it's not quite accurate, but it's left to make you feel like you're following Lorraine up the steps, taking out the snipers, coming back down the steps, taking out everybody on the ground level. It feels like one unbroken shot. This is awesome. This is <laughs> damn near breathtaking. I'm going to say cumulatively, I'm going to give this a markout moment. It's really more of like a markout moment snowball because of the one shot gimmick of it, for lack of a better term, for the one shot device, I guess, because it's just all momentum. You know, you watching this for the first time, not really knowing how it was going to go, seeing her take out the first couple guys, that was awesome. But then to realize the camera is still going. And, you know, when you're watching it the first time, you kind of want to be sort of a film dork and be like, well, let me see if I can find the edits here. <laughs> oh, there's a splice. Okay. When she gets thrown up against the wall, that's a really quick cut. You know, that's the stunt person. And then they swap it back out. But I think the beauty of the Wonder in the beauty of the Wonder device in this moment, it's okay if you if you're looking for the seams, but at a certain point you have to realize, well, what if this wasn't one unbroken shot? What if this was Lorraine's real life? You know, she doesn't get other takes in real life. She doesn't get to say time out and redo her hair or wipe the blood from her face. Everything she's doing in this moment is being captured for film in this moment. So by the time you do get to her fighting her last few people and she's huffing and puffing and just like feral yelling, you absolutely feel that. This is all going to be one gigantic markout moment for you. Yeah, me. so good. One of the things that I noticed too is, or was wondering, she seems to be just as tall as everyone that she fights, which I feel like is really interesting. Again, being excited about it being a female-led action movie. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting for women to portray these characters. And I wonder, trying to look back, like, I know Angelina Jolie has done action movies, and, and who else? Who else has been a woman just as tall as her male opponents? Because it just seemed, I, I don't know, there's something about that visual too, especially at the end where she's fighting Keys and they're both on the on the ground for kind of an extended period. Both of them are fucked up. Both of them are like just barely getting up and then they both get up and they are the same size, at least height wise. I don't know. that It, it made me notice everyone's physicality a lot more, this entire like sequence. The beauty of using Charlize Theron in this movie is that you don't have any moments in this movie where some man has to be a man, where he's like, "Oh, look at this little yes. lady! Come on, you get the first shot. You know, I'll let you. I'll let you take a punch right here." No, there's none of that. This movie understands Lorraine Broughton is very good at her job. She's one of the best, and everyone she comes in contact with is going to treat her the same way. So I have a great appreciation for Charlize Theron in this role. Yes, yeah, I love that. There was this uh, clickbait article that was like, "Why Quentin Tarantino hates Atomic Blonde" or something like that. He goes on to say, because he could spot the edits, it ruined it for him, which I honestly, you know, look, it, you you said like, oh, uh, I could be a film nerd trying to find the edits. I mean, that's exactly, I guess, what happened here. That didn't bother me at all. Like, because this to me, we're still trying to tell a story here. Like, what is the point of the, you know, simulating this one interrupted take or just even having a really long take? You know, we're not trying to like set a Guinness World Record. We're just trying to show 
the brutality that a fight like this would have. The fact that it goes on for so long, like you know, like you both mentioned, and that they are so exhausted at the end, Keys and Lorraine, that really comes across with this uh, longer shot and the fact that a body got pushed into the camera and, and then they use that as an edit or there's some darkness when we rounded a corner and we edit. Who cares? I think you already answered this, but just to say it again, did that bother any of you? The fact that like there were some edits? No, not in the slightest. You know, like I said, you know, it, this isn't... You know, I think we need to split hairs here and differentiate this between a wonder that we've seen in Hard Boiled or The Protector, where it is a showcase for the filmmaker. It is them showing off, hey, look at what we were able to coordinate. This is all one take. This is all one shot. If anyone messes up, we have to reset. I think this movie, a lot like the wonder in Creed, when it's just one shot following you through Creed's fight, and the longer it goes on, the more you realize, oh, shoot, I'm in this ring for three minutes. I'm not getting a breath of air. I think this movie wanted to recreate that, but also take it up a notch because, you know, there's there's life and death involved. Like, she's fighting for her life. This isn't glamorous. I, I, I'm very high on this scene. Yeah. I like all the various things that she uses, too. Like, it really is this scramble for, oh, whatever's in this backpack, oh, it happens to be very heavy, so it, it it's beneficial to me, or just anything that she's using around her and just... She really is fighting for her life, and you can tell, and you're right there with her, and I love it. Uh, no, I mean, I, I've not made a list, but this has to be a top 10 action scene, maybe of all time. There's a scene in Kill Bill where the bride is facing off against Oren Ishii, and uh, Lucy Liu's character says, you didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? And the bride says, you know, for a minute, yeah, I kind of did. The first fight sequence where we see uh, Lorraine like kick ass, like she's wearing the cool outfit. She's got like the uh, the thigh high boots or or whatever the garter belt and the you know the fuzzy jet basically like a style fight like that was like style points right like she was kicking people's ass to not not even breaking a sweat and here we get it's like no nah, man the, the, that's not gonna be it's not a cakewalk it's not called a cakewalk blonde right and so this fight is fucking brutal and because Spyglass is already hurt and he's you know he's bleeding out and because Lorraine is gonna go up against enemies that are bigger than her she has no time to fuck around and you get that right from the get go. There's a scene where a dude comes, boom, 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 stabs him like multiple times, like, fuck you. That was my first markout moment. She beats up some other dude, goes back to that guy she stabbed a couple times, stabs him right in the fucking neck. That's another yeah. markout moment for me. Yeah. Then she meets up with Daniel Bernhardt. This is like in the top floor. And they're fucking, you know, just going to town on each other. At some moment, they're both exhausted. He's coming for uh, She hits him with a fucking hot plate. And you just like That's hear right, the dong the of that metal. I was so excited about the hot plate. I was like, what is that? A hot plate? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, to muster up that energy, at some point she rushes him and she does this like, like feral scream, like you mentioned, another mark out moment. And then they're in close contact with each other. Keys is like choking her out. But she, Lorraine, has grabbed a a corkscrew bottle opener, right? Uh, He he says something. uh, He calls her a bitch. She starts stabbing him in the face with this fucking corkscrew bottle opener. And she says this. Am I your bitch now? I don't think I've ever gone straight from a Jesus fucking Christ straight into another markout moment faster than this. Because it was like, oh, God, oh, hell yeah. But oh, my (laughs) God. Seriously, what an exhausting scene. But just amazing. And then it doesn't stop. I'm also going to have a markout moment here, too, with the I'm your bitch now line. I, I tried to keep this all as one markout moment. I try, you know, it's one giant snowball of a markout moment. 
But to put a button on it like that, you know, when someone calls uh, the female lead a bitch, that's going to be instant permission slip signage. So it was just a matter of time before he got his comeuppance. So to get it in such a satisfying way, to get the corkscrew to the face, to get her remarking in my bitch now, this will be my third markout moment of the movie. And after she clears the building of these KGB agents, they could have cut right there. They could have gone back to just like regular cuts, regular speed. But no, then she gets a spyglass in a fucking car and then they're driving. And then like as they're driving, like now we get some music coming in. You know, they're shooting other cars or some good car crunching. Honestly, I'm reaching a point where I'm getting tired watching it. I'm just like, mm-hmm. please cut, edit, or something. Ugh, I just can't sustain it, which is insane because what am I? I'm just laying in bed. <laughs> yeah, I like the part where you hear the muffled music, which is that uh, the song that they play in the 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 Vice City. And uh, oh, Flock of Seagulls. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Which I only associate with Vice City, the video game commercials. But you hear it muffled at first, and then a window gets shut out, and then you hear it f- full full blaring music, and I. In, there's, I was kind of confused as like, wait, where was that music coming from? Who cares? Drive! Uh, but during the sequence, there was one of those shots where the camera lingered too long uh, looking outside the um, window of the car. Like the character was kind of framed off to the left. And it's like, oh man, there's plenty of room for a car to come smashing into it. Uh, and it didn't happen. And I was like, oh good. We didn't get one of those like cheap car comes out of nowhere and uh, smashes everything in the frame. However, we get a five seconds later <laughs> It's like, it's not going to happen. It's like it is. And it knocks the car that Lorraine and Spyglass are in and knocks into the river. Who's driving the car? It's Le Chauffeur, the dude whose ass she kicked at the beginning of the movie. And so they're in the car, but the car is like crunched. Lorraine is able to unbuckle, but Spyglass is not. And she's trying to like, you know, kick the whatever metal is like got Spyglass's legs pinned inside the car. And she looks over at some point and realizes that Spyglass is dead. And look, you know, there's definitely a lot of like, you know, green screen work uh, when they get in the car. However, you know, they're definitely underwater. You know, if it's at a tank in a studio, who cares? But uh, Eddie Marsan has a death face here. He's able to hold underwater. Effective. Uh, that's all I got to say is just, uh, damn, all right. That's that's a tough death face. I was wondering if... They really killed him? They were actually in... in <laughs> yes, if they actually really <laughs> killed him. I was wondering if, if they were really filming in water because it was so good that I was like, wait. Because the look on her face, the way that she's looking at him in the water, and then, yeah, his death face. I was like, is this in water? Because this is amazing. <laughs> How do you know? Did you look it up or you could just tell that it was- I feel like you could just tell that they're in water I mean, because they had air bubbles like coming out of their mouth. Okay. There's one more thing that happened where any other movie would have been a markout moment, but just like there were so many in a row. Once they get in the car, Keys, who we thought was dead, comes out and like jumps on the hood of their car. He's still alive. And then thunk, thunk, not for long because they run him over again. I think that that was in there just kind of for laughs. But it was it was pretty funny and pretty cool. But I mean, after that fight, it, it just it played more as like a joke than like a uh, a cool action moment. Well, there was also there's that moment that you mentioned where you think that a car is going to come out of nowhere and it doesn't. But doesn't one one of the cars that is chasing after them, they get fucked up by something by a truck that comes out of nowhere and gets them instead. And so you see it behind them. They're like, oh, shit, something did come out of nowhere, but it hit our enemies. So you're glad for a second. So there's a moment in the in the Jeep chase, in the shootout, you know, while they're driving, where Lorraine and Spyglass throw it in reverse and they're driving in reverse. So they're watching their pursuer get T-boned by a truck. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where, like, I'm enjoying this so much that... 
you know, I've gone on record. I hate blindsides. You know, I hate the the T-bone out of nowhere. So to feel like I avoided it up until this point, it was a relief. So by the time the actual blindside T-bone comes, I'm not mad at it. Like, it got me good. Exactly. That's exactly how I felt. It's like, oh, oh, it happened to someone else. Take that, you bitch. Oh, wait, what? Damn it. <laughs> I thought I was wise to these things already. <laughs> but going back to your point, Mac, you know, to, to Eddie Marsan's credit, excellent death face. I feel like it does convey a lot, especially in the conversations that Spyglass and Lorraine had leading up to the escape where he knows what Lorraine knows and Lorraine knows what he knows. So please keep me alive. And Lorraine assures him, I have not lost a package. You're no good to me dead. Whatever you think I'm, I'm in this for, my prime objective is to get you home safe. And so for, for Eddie Marsan to kind of wear that on his, on his death face, it worked for me. I thought that was a, an oddly poignant moment in this movie. He might be wondering, okay, if the Berlin Wall is about to fall, why is Spyglass so insistent on getting across the border now? Like, couldn't he just get across the border himself in two days? But the thing is, is like, because he, he knows too fucking much. And uh, yeah, he's in danger right now. Like, he could be killed at any moment. I feel like once that border is open, that just makes him easier to kill. So, uh, like, a lot of motivation for him to get across, or at least to get his family across. It did not happen. And after this giant sequence, which ends with failure for Lorraine, you know, this whole thing was for nothing because she's staring at uh, her objective right in the face and he's fucking dead. We cut back to the, you know, the present, if you will, the debrief and Kurtzfeld just goes, oh, you need a break, which I thought, you know, again, very funny. It was a great little button on a scene because, yeah, after all that, I did kind of feel like I need a little bit of a break. Compound that with, you know, in this moment in the debriefing, the tape ends. So they, they need to take a moment to to load another tape so they can keep recording your testimony. I thought this was an excellent end of that sequence where it's like, all right, we've told you a lot. Let's cool down a little bit. Like, let, let's just, let's step back and just relax. No, I, I thought this was well done. But Mac and Hamana, Merkel retrieves the battered and bruised Lorraine and word gets back to Percival that Lorraine survived the attack. Lorraine figures out that Percival has planted a bug on her coat and informs Delphine that they've both been set up. Delphine returns to her place to pack up and leave, but not before developing some important intel for Lorraine. Percival breaks into Delphine's place and murders her and heads home to burn everything in his apartment, but Lorraine stops him from skipping town and murders him in the street. Lorraine takes Percival's watch containing the list and identifies him as Satchel. A surprising amount going on going into the third act, but let's get into it. Yeah, so Lorraine does get across and uh, I mean, how does she look after all this, uh, you know, this crazy encounter? Oh, man, she looks like just an amazing beat up shit. I mean, just exactly the way you want her to look because you know what she's been through. I love it. I'm like, yeah, look, look at her busted ass face. She she earned that shit. <laughs> she is traumatized and hurt. It is a look similar to a look that she gives off in Mad Max Fury Road, where she wears the apocalypse very well. She wears her mission very well. You know, there are points in that movie where you could tell she just wants out. She's so exhausted. And I, I I feel that in this movie as well. For her to like still carry the glamour of a movie star, you still know you're watching a movie with this gorgeous human being, you know, as the lead. But to know that she has been put through the ringer, this was well done. And again, I like that they drive home how cold she is. Because so much of her character is cold, is in the cold. You know, so many metaphors and things you can say about that. So in this scene, she's fucking freezing. She just got out of that freezing water. She saw her objective dead. She feels like she hasn't a friend in the world. She's been caught. She failed. 
Um, she's out in the cold, and I like that they they really drive that home. With, when, even when um, what's his name, Merkel, he like puts a blanket on her. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking she's still wearing those freezing clothes, though. <laughs> so what is that fucking blanket doing? But you know, I, I like it. Yeah, yeah, Samantha, let's get her out of those <laughs> let's clothes. Get her out of You're those absolutely clothes, right. You know, let's get her nice and comfy. <laughs> but Lorraine realizes that hey, things are fucked up, but they shouldn't be this fucked up. Someone has been listening to every one of my conversations, it feels like. I think that person is Percival. And what does she discover? Max, she discovers that Percival uh, has put a wire in the collar of her coat. There's We flash back to a scene earlier when she goes over to Percival's place. He very gentlemanly asks, uh, may I take your coat? It's, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek. But we're flashing back to that now and realizing, oh, he took that opportunity to put a wire in her coat. And... Uh, you know, she, she's in her hotel room, like she's ripping it apart, like it's the end of the conversation. The Berlin Wall is falling at this moment, like it, the, the TV is playing that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's all gone sideways for Lorraine, and it's it's very effective. Uh, is this where we get that weird Kurt Loder cameo on the TV? This is. This is where we cut to Percival in his apartment. He's getting ready to burn everything, uh, except for the Jack Daniels. God, let's hope he doesn't burn that Jack Daniels. But we also see the MTV news footage of of Kurt Loder and it's it's this weird sort of like an, not anachronistic but it feels out of time where he's talking about like coming up next sampling is that uh, a weird thing to do and it's like we laugh at yeah. it now yeah I mean it <laughs> almost like is the point of the scene showing how out of touch Americans are because I I think we did care about the Berlin Wall falling regardless of whether Kurt Loder had another story to get to but Lorraine realizes oh my God if Percival is listening to all my conversations then he knows that Delphine, you know, is on to him as well, or like has been telling me about Percival. And so Lorraine goes over to Delphine's apartment, but someone beats her there. It's Percival. It's a very brutal scene where he kills Delphine. I mean, I get it. I did not enjoy watching it though. I, I, I like Delphine. I didn't want her to die. Yeah. I obviously the first time we watched it, I didn't know it was coming and we were in a movie theater, but the second time I knew it was coming and I definitely got up to like go brush my teeth or something. Cause I was like, I just, I just don't want to watch her die the way she does. It really, yeah, it, it, it hurts. That scene hurts for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you both. I, I get that. But at the same time, I think this does set up a bit of conversation that Percival and Lorraine have before Lorraine kills Percival where, you know, she she chides him for it. She's like, you did not have to kill her. Like, you knew she's in the minors. We're in the majors. You could have treated her better than that. And Percival remarks something like, well, you know, look who decided to develop a conscience all of a sudden, you know. I've seen the I've seen the list. I've seen what you've done, what your history is. But I think this murder set up the punching of the permission slip at the end, you know, because up until this point, you never really know. We might have still kind of thought Percival was a lovable scamp. You know, he did shoot Spyglass, but maybe he had his reasons. But this very clearly tells the audience, no, no, no. Percival's going to get his and you're going to enjoy it. And that conversation happens because Percival, after, you know, burning down what he can, he's on his way out of town. He has to leave his beloved city of uh, Berlin. And uh, he gets shot, I think, by Lorraine, which is kind of like a, a wounding shot. I guess we just want to give Percival time to, to deliver a monologue here. Pretty much. This is going to be his I fucking love Berlin speech. He's going to essentially, <laughs> I almost want to compare it to Orson Welles' speech in The Third Man, where he's talking about, we are the cogs that make the machine run. Like, this world does not exist without corruption and intrigue and backstabbing. Like, we exist because the world needs us to exist. I, I actually, I liked this a lot. I thought this was a very fitting farewell 
for Percival, but man, you guys got to watch more action movies. You cannot monologue. It is just a sure ticket to death. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. But then Lorraine wounds Percival. She's got him on the ground. They're talking about the list. They're talking about, you know, kind of like we just said, going over what they should have done, what they shouldn't have done. You shouldn't have killed Delphine, that sort of thing. And Lorraine caps the whole conversation before she delivers one final blow. She basically says to Percival, isn't that right, Comrade Satchel? And then he's impressed. You know, there's a they refer to a Machiavelli quote that they referenced earlier where, you know, there's something satisfying about deceiving the deceiver. Let's go ahead and play a little clip of audio where they're discussing it. Truth and lies. People like us don't know the difference. No, we know the difference, David. We choose to ignore it. Isn't that right, Comrade Satchel? So that's how you'll make it work. It's a double pleasure to deceive the deceiver. Well played. So there you go. But with Lorraine's story not yielding the results they wished for, MI6 make the decision to bury the story, disavow any knowledge of Lorraine's mission, and place her on indefinite leave. So here we cut back to the debriefing, and it's like the conclusion of the debriefing. And uh, Gray, again played by Toby Jones, is like, wait, what? You just admitted to shooting the head of station for Berlin. You shot another MI6 agent. And she's like, yeah, it's because, you know, he deserved it because he was fucking Satchel. And how does she prove to them that he's Satchel? She doctored up a recording. She took spliced audio from her conversations with Percival, from her interactions with Bremovich. She basically puts together this mixtape track, I guess, this fake track implicating Percival as Satchel. And she turns it in. She even gets a little gets in a little burn on C. At one point, she's asking Percival in like, you know, in flashback footage, like, hey, what do you think about our boss, C? And he's like, ah, C's a piece of shit. And so like, just to be petty, she puts that in there. I don't know, or just to make it feel realistic. But yeah, she's she's setting old uh, she's setting old Percival up as Satchel. So as uh, as Kurtzfeld said earlier in the movie, this whole mission is definitely a goat fuck. Instead, they just want to sweep it under the rug, and they're like, "Hey, you know what, uh, Lorraine, you're on leave. Okay, just go home and get some rest, and we'll fucking figure out what to do with everybody later." And so she's going to tag it with an excellent ending to this movie. She's going to say one more thing. What should I wear for my tea with the queen? Because they promised her toward the beginning of the movie, like, you know, if you uh, figure out the identity of of Satchel, I, I see big things for you. I see you meeting with the queen. And so this is her kind of like tongue in cheek, like, well, all right, I did what you said. When am I going to meet with the queen? And then London Calling starts playing. Awesome end of the movie, except there's more movie. Like, what could this movie possibly have to deliver? Yeah, because uh, apparently, um, I guess with spy movies, Part of the appeal for some of these people is just the twist. And so here we go. We're in a, it's a twist-a-thon. And this twist-a-thon begins three days later. We do a little bit of a three-day-later time jump. That's right. Lorraine's going to head to Paris where she meets up with Bremovich. And we learn that she was a double agent working for the KGB. But wait, when Bremovich reveals that Satchel is actually Lorraine, he makes plans to execute her. But thanks to some help from the well-hidden Merkel, Lorraine takes out Bremovich and his men. With Lorraine's time with the KGB at an end, the watchmaker gives Lorraine a ride to the airport so she can head home with Kurtzfeld, her fellow CIA agent. What? She's a triple agent? And Satchel? And American? USA! 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 We did it, everybody. All right, well, three days later, when we see Lorraine Paris now, she's no longer a blonde. She's wearing uh, a red dress. Amina, you mentioned the the different uh, looks that Lorraine was serving up in this movie. 
Did you like her as a brunette? No. I mean, in general, I like her any way she wants to present herself because she's, it's Charlize Theron. But no, I, when she puts on that brown wig, yeah, you're just like, no, you're Atomic Blonde. This is not, this is not you. So yeah, I was like, what was going on here? What What's happening now? But I got to correct you, Max. She's not wearing a red dress. She's wearing a red sweater. Oh. It's just like a kind of coat, this fancy thing, which I like because then she, you know, gets rid of the brown hair and she gets rid of the red. She's back into black and white. But I thought she looked so cool in the beginning of the movie. And then for this moment, you know, for a second, you think that she's a traitor and she has this like, you know, kind of definitely toned down look. She felt like a style traitor to me in the moment as well. I was like, was anything real, Lorraine? Yes, I love that for sure. I think that 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 was very intentional and, and very effective. I didn't mind it so much. I always like the hair sweeping over one eye. It's very, <laughs> it's very graphic novel. Like it, this really, you know, this really feels like you're in the final pages of a comic book. And um, yeah, no, I was okay with it. No, that is true though. The style, that the color, I was like, oh, what? It just made me suspicious, which I was right to be. But the style, I also noticed the hair over one eye, definitely iconic. Definitely, I mean, exactly like you said, graphic novel. I also like that Charlize Theron, Another way in which she's such a great actress is she really does use her eyes in a certain way. I know that Delphine at one point is like, oh, your eyes change when you tell the truth. That's an interesting thing to say to Charlize Theron, the actress as well, because the she just has a way to express, like in that moment when she's wearing the black wig and she realizes that this guy is about to pull something on her, her eye does this thing like she, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but she's just so effective with her face. And so the fact that they only left one eye open like that, and you can tell that it's almost like her internal computer is scanning like, okay, what do I do? What do I have into my disposal? There's a gun in the eyes. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I, she's just so effective. Well, there's also some effective visual storytelling going on here because, you know, Delphine plants the seed earlier in the movie where your eyes change when you lie. So... To have one eye covered, I think it's the movie kind of surreptitiously saying, all right, Lorraine's not on the up and up. She's trying to hide her tell, basically. She doesn't want to give up her hand. Yeah, right. Because she herself says, I need to, uh, thank you for telling me that. I need to make sure that I, I don't do that because it's going to get me killed. So she gives the list to Brimovich, you know, the KGB agent who we've been dealing with the movie, you know, and she, by giving him the list, she, giving, she gives him the watch or at least what we think is the list. And so in this moment, we're like, oh, shit. And he calls her Satchel, I believe. And in this moment, we're like, oh, shit, she's a traitor. She's been working for the KGB this whole time. Once Brimovich has the watch, the list, he's like, I guess I don't need you anymore, Satchel. I'm going to kill you. And so in come the other KGB agents. Uh, and they're like, you know, they're kind of monologuing a little bit right before they're about to murder her. And they very methodically like start laying down like some plastic tarp or a body bag. And uh, Le Chauffeur is like, you know, hey, be a professional. Can you please stand here? So I don't have to drag your body after I shoot you. Something about people coming in a room and casually setting up plastic bags for killing you. Even though I, I felt in this moment pretty sure she was going to live. That was terrifying. Yes. When he says, be a professional, like, ah, you almost for a second doubt. Wait, is she caught? Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, that was terrifying. And, and, and exactly knowing that, oh, that's the plastic for my leavings. Once yeah. my body is, <laughs> is uh, torn open by bullets. Yeah, it, it's sufficiently thrilling. It's sufficiently terrifying. But also for me, if this is where the movie ends, I don't mind that. Like there's something there's something very poignant about 
knowing that you live by the game and you die by the game, that she was a double agent and that's going to exponentially increase her chances of pissing somebody off or double crossing the wrong person or, you know, just getting involved in something that she shouldn't have gotten involved in. So I was kind of, there was a part of me that was like, wow, what a way to end this movie. But no, there's more movie. <laughs> well, how is there more movie? Because she's got no weapons and uh, these uh, KGB agents definitely do. Oh, jeepers, Max. She's inexplicably got a gun in one of the ice buckets. This confused me the first time I was watching it. She, you know, for her to have entered this hotel room, a strange environment, but know that it's there. I was just like, oh, has she been hooking up with Bremovich and like that's his kink where he's like, I love having guns around. <laughs> I like ice cold guns. <laughs> ice cold guns that don't work in water. But like, turns out, you know, she she pulls out the gun. She lays waste to Bremovich's men. She gets a shot in on Bremovich, kills him. And then we find out outside, uh, Merkel and his team are waiting outside. So this was a relief and a half for someone to have played a center of good. Maybe not the center of good in this movie, but Merkel was, um, there were no flaws to the Merkel character. Merkel was good and trustworthy worthy throughout. So to have this sort of be his character epilogue, I was very into that. But as she shoots Bremovich, she reveals that she did not actually give him the list and that she was never really actually working with him. She says this, in fact. I never worked for you. You worked for me. Every false intel I gave you, I ripped an iron curtain. Every piece of intel you gave me, a bullet in my fucking gun. I want my life back. After disposing of Bremovich, she walks outside, and then, yeah, Merkel is there with the support crew ready to clean up the KGB bodies. We then cut to a runway. Guess who drove Lorraine to the runway? It's the watchmaker, Till Schweiger. He was her man as well. She gets on the airplane. Who's on the airplane? It's fucking John Goodman. Kurtzfeld, we find out, yes, she was a CIA agent posing as an MI6 agent who is posing as a KGB informant. Uh, Kurtzfeld gives a nice little callback to the little game they were playing in the debriefing where he's like, do you have to call me a cocksucker? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and she's like, hey, I just want to go home. And that is the end of Atomic Blonde. Man, in that moment when the movie is, you know, when you roll credits or whatever, I wish I understood it. You know what I mean? How do y'all feel? I definitely was still confused this time around. Like, I don't think I quite get it. You mean? Just like all the moving pieces, like, you know, all of her motivations, everything she did, it didn't perfectly sync up in my mind. I was still like, huh? I guess it, if I did have a feeling like that, it was more that I would, I, I need to rewatch this because I definitely missed details. So yeah, yeah, maybe I did feel that way. Like, uh, I need to see this again. Yeah, definitely. You know, after watching it for my first viewing, I was comfortable in the notion that I was going to watch it again. Like by the time you get to the end, I'm like, I'll see you on the second viewing. That's where I'm going to pause, take my notes, figure some stuff out. So I wasn't too thrown by it on the initial viewing. I think watching it the second time is kind of where the unreliable narrator theory started to develop just to plug in some gaps. And by that, I mean... You know, it's pretty goddamn impressive to be a triple agent, especially when you're in such close quarters like Berlin, when you're in such a such a powder keg of intelligence activity. You have the Stasi there, you have the CIA, you have the KGB, you have the frogs, you have the, the French intelligence that's there. But like, you know, it's one of those things that reminds you 
or reinforces the notion that this movie has to exist in the 80s. Much like we were talking about with The Incredibles, where if this movie existed in the time of surveillance, someone would have spotted Mr. Incredible changing into his uniform or his outfit and his car changing, and that would have been his cover blown. So for this movie to exist in the 80s pre-technology, where you have a little more leeway for someone being such a good agent that they fool every intelligence agency, I, I was I was on board with it, but I knew that I was going to have to do some homework on and further viewings. And before we get into uh, our markout moments and punch-ups, et cetera, because of what we learn at the ending, it kind of reframes what we just saw, right? Like, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about it because the reason why I feel like this plot is confusing or it lends itself to leaving me, the viewer, with a little bit of a head-scratcher is because the key characters, Lorraine Broad and Percival, are loyal to their own motivations above all else. Like, also, side character Bakhtin, right? Like, he killed Gascoigne in the beginning to get the list, but then later just tries to sell the list. So, like, you know, it's kind of a a more fleshed out version of these characters where they're not just like, oh, I'm a British uh, agent. I'm going to only be loyal to Great Britain. Like, the characters have their own interests and motivations, but you kind of don't expect that. Like, you expect a British spy to only act in the interests of Great Britain. And let's say you have a spy that's a traitor working for the KGB or Stasi. You know, you then expect them to only work for their new masters. And these characters, Percival and Lorraine, have pretty much like abandoned their national loyalties, or it's just not their number one objective anymore. For Lorraine, we don't know that until the end of the movie. For Percival, they pretty much say that right away. They're like, he's gone rogue. He's kind of doing his own thing. But because the mystery of who is Satchel is floating above the actions of this movie, we're kind of viewing Percival's actions like in terms of like, oh, is he Satchel? Not just like, no, this dude loves being a weird like Berlin barter town master. So this is what all he all he likes to to do. So now what do we know about people? Lorraine Broughton. She, I guess, was CIA the whole time. They put her in the MI6 program, kind of departed style. And she was instructed by a CIA to work as a double agent for then the KGB just to get the information out of them. At some point, this list exists and it is out in the open. Obviously, an intelligence agency wants this list because it exposes like, you know, a bunch of agents, but it's also it's and it's bad for British intelligence to reveal the identity of their agents. But it's double bad if this list exposes Lorraine, because it also reveals the CIA is not only spying on the KGB, but they're spying on their friends and allies, the British. So that is bad. So Lorraine Broad, what are her objectives? She wants to get the list. She needs to keep her cover. And to do that, she has to order the killing of Gascoin, which is fucked up. So the very beginning of this movie, uh, when we see Gascoin die, that was Lorraine's order. And Gascoin, I mean, they even fucked once. Like, you know, uh, not that everyone you have sex with, you need to love forever. That's not what I'm saying. But like, this is someone she knows. And she, you know, you you get, do get a sense that she does mourn his death because she's looking at his body later. And, you know, it's not just like a, uh, oh, ho hum, there's a body. But yeah, man, it it does cast Lorraine in a new light. Wait, did you connect those dots or did I miss them revealing at some point that she ordered Gascoigne to die? I connected the dots based on the ending of the movie. That's nutso. Another reason why I need to watch it like eight more times. Well, because you also remember the very, very beginning of the movie when Gascoigne's being chased through the city in his robe and his underwear. When Bakhtin finally catches up to him, Satchel gave me up, didn't he? Or, you know, Satchel gave me up, didn't they? Like, you know, I've always wanted to get killed by the best, and you're not the best, are you, Bakhtin? Inferring that Satchel is the best. You guys. Let me ask you this, panel. I mean, I'm going to lump you in with Mac on this one, assuming that you're thinking the same thing. But do you get the sense that there was 
actually a relationship between those two, or is that just the machinations of the movie? Do we feel that there's a connection between Lorraine and Gascoigne because the movie tells us there is? Is it possible that there is no emotional attachment between Lorraine and Gascoigne? He's just a rung in the ladder. Dude, I don't know what's up or down right now. Because you you just, I feel, and this is not, I'm not, not in a bad way, in a good way, because I'm excited to watch it again. I feel like such a dummy that I didn't remember that line of Satchel sent you, Satchel sent you, and then I'm like, oh shit, if Lorraine is Satchel, Satchel... Okay, so did they actually have some sort of... I don't know what to believe, David. I honestly don't. Because I totally thought they did. And now, now I don't know. Now I'm going to have to watch it again on, with this idea of the of the uh, unreliable narrator and also knowing what Lorraine did. Well, let me ask y'all this question. Do you get the feeling that Lorraine mourned the death of Delphine for more than like a, you know, a minute? Like, did she feel that death? Was she, did she care at all about Delphine? Or was that just like, you know, collateral damage? I want to say she did... You mentioned when we talked about it earlier that you you know we're we're in the majors she's in the minors like you didn't have to you didn't have to do that like I think that on top of the fact that you know she did have a connection with her I mean maybe it was only physical but she got to know her more and so I feel like I feel like she did I would say more so than Gascoigne whatever whatever relationship there is there real or imagined I I think the movie does a very good job like Amanda said of of letting you know. Hey, man, that was dirty pool. That was not the way we play this game, and that wasn't cool. So I think, you know, I think that's a symbol of her job in this life taking its toll on her, where she is tough enough for the task. She is built to be a spy, but there is going to be collateral damage around her, and and that's going to make her sad at times. You know, she's better at dealing with it in some cases, but in the case of Delphine, I, I think that really affected her. Yeah, I feel the same way about Gascoigne. I don't think she wanted to do it, but I think, you know, uh, it's the dirty job. Someone's got to do it, and she had to. What's up with Percival now that the movie is over? He has been working for MI6 the whole time, but he just loves Berlin, right? He's been working for himself now. He's set up his little, like, fiefdom. It's kind of like the he calls it the Wild Wild West, and he, he, he feels like he's the sheriff, right? Or he's thriving in that environment. And part of working for himself is if it suits him to occasionally collaborate with the KGB, he will. He doesn't give a shit. And when Lorraine comes in, he views her as a new intelligence officer that's going to fuck things up for him. And so he keeps trying to need like different ways to get Lorraine like sent home. Like the as soon as she arrives in Berlin, the, like non-kidnapping because she escapes from the car. I feel like that was, you know, uh, Percival telling the KGB agents that she was going to arrive and they'd have to send her home. Like, oh, her cover's blown. I guess I got to send her home. Lorraine goes to Gascoigne's apartment. Uh, Percival gets the West Berlin cops, tells him that she is there. Oh, she got arrested by the police. I guess she's got to go home. He hires Delphine to keep tabs on LB. Of course, Delphine sucks, so she tells uh, Lorraine that. But once Lorraine crosses over to East Berlin, he's like, oh, well, you can go ahead and kill her. Like, he's happy to have her die in East Berlin because that is going to be harder to trace back to him. However, Lorraine cannot be killed because she's a fucking beast. Delphine, she was hired by Percival to keep track of Lorraine, but again, she's not good at a spy, so she tells everything to Lorraine, or at least tries to. Percival kills her because she has evidence that he's been working with the KGB. And now that the walls are come crumbling down, he's probably going to have to go, you know, back to MI6 and like tell them what he's been up to. And that's not going to look good. So he kills her to cover it up. Percival's biggest crime, killing Delphine. Lorraine's biggest crime is ordering the death of, of Gascoigne, but she did not kill Gascoigne herself. So now that this movie is over, and let's say I'm right about this, I may be wrong. How do you feel about Lorraine? Do you feel, do you like her less? No, I love her more. 
I continue to want to be her. She is goals. I, I, I've got to agree with that. I, I think I think she displays the fact that she is ex- an exceptional spy. You know, this is a spy movie. You want to see who can come out on top, who can con the con artist. And, and she's excellent at it. Yeah, I agree. It shows the lengths that she is willing to go to to get the job done. Does it make her a good person? No. Uh, does it make her a formidable force? It, it certainly does. Here's what I'll say about Lorraine, and here's why she comes off better, in my estimation, at the end of this movie. Because as we get to the end of this movie, and she's taking care of Percival and and trying to pin him as Satchel, she remarks that, you know, she knows that he was the one who set them up when they were trying to get Spyglass across. Percival was the one who gave her up to the KGB, because Percival was too much of a chicken shit to kill her himself. He wanted the KGB to do it. And I think in this moment, you know, as the as the movie's wrapping up, you know, well, maybe I'm I'm contradicting myself because she wasn't the one who killed Gascoigne, but I also I'm postulating that maybe there wasn't the connection that there was between them. But if something needs to get done, Lorraine's going to do it. You know, that's really that's the thrust of this movie. You know, everyone thinks that she's just there to to collect Gascoigne's body and, and split. She's not gonna carry out this objective, but no, she's there the whole time. She knows what she's doing from beginning to end, and there's something very satisfying, especially in a spy movie, especially with the movie with so many twists and turns, to know that someone knew their place the entire time and was two moves ahead on the chessboard. It was it was satisfying to me. Goddamn, these spy movies requiring all this extra talk, and now that is definitely the end of Atomic Blonde. All right, how many Marco moments do you have in this thing? How many moms, David? I had three. How about you, Mac? I had five. Amina, did you keep track of your mark moments? I had eight. No, I, I didn't keep track of them, but I'm just uh, adding the two numbers that you guys gave. Oh, fair I'll enough. buy it. Is this someone's favorite movie? Mine. It's my favorite <laughs> it's not movie your now. favorite movie. It's my favorite movie now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll piggyback on that. Not to be reductive, but I, I think ladies. Uh, you know, this, is certain, this certainly has a lot for men to enjoy. I, you know, this is an across-the-board action movie. But I think there's something about representation, you know, being a woman, being able to go to this movie and not see it as though, you know, oh, I'm this scrappy, mousy little girl and I'm going to show them I'm going to make my way as a spy. No, 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 no. This movie starts frame one. Lorraine is awesome. This movie ends at the final frame. Lorraine is awesome. I hope more women see this and I hope this is more women's favorite movie. Same. I I wonder, because I didn't hear anybody talk about it and haven't heard anybody talk about it since. It doesn't often come up. So yeah, I'm going to start poking around to, every time I go to the bathroom, ask the next doll, hey, have you seen Atomic Blonde? It's going to get you in trouble. That's really, you <laughs> cannot do that anymore. <laughs> Mac, what do you think? Is this someone's favorite movie? I think so. Charlize Theron definitely has to have her fans out there. If you're a fan of Charlize Theron as an action hero, I mean, it's either this or Fury Road, I feel like. And and yeah, I mean, the amount of style and style points this movie has, it's got to be someone's favorite movie. Guys, I just said it was mine. Damn it. I mean, a civilian out there. Civvy. All right, time for some punch-ups. Uh, we're the Ultimate Script Doctors. Everybody knows that. David, how would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? Mac, I've got none. I have no punch-ups for this movie. This movie did exactly what it set out to do. I am not going to stand in its way. However, maybe like a post-game, maybe like a talking blonde where it's just a recap for dummies like me because I really could have used someone at the very end to be like, or just even like a crawl, like a really fast, like a, like a disclaimer, like, Here's what happened at the end of the movie. Lorraine was it's like something like that to just make me feel a little less dumb. I'm right there with you. I want one of those like reveal montages. 
when Lorraine was thinking back of like, oh, how did uh, Percival hear all my conversations? We get a flashback shot of him grabbing her coat. And then she's like, oh, it's in my coat. God, why didn't we have it? One of those at the end of the movie. Like usually when movies do this, I'm like, you don't need to remind me of something I just fucking saw. But go ahead and do it. Have some real dumbed down flashbacks where we see like what Lorraine has actually been up to this whole time. Really drive it home. Just dumb it down for me. I'm a dummy. So I don't have to like sit there and like type out my theories afterward. Wait, that sounds, yeah. I I, I like that idea of seeing a little flashback like that. Even something like, like at the end of like Fast Times or at the end of like Three Kings where they're, you know, telling you what happens to the group after this moment that we're following them in the movie. You know, I remember Three Kings was like, uh, Mark Wahlberg opens up a, a carpet store and George Clooney goes to Hollywood and they never found all of the missing gold. And I'm like, that's satisfying enough for me. Like, just have have a satisfying button at the end of this to wrap it up. Maybe not 100%, but just get you a little closer to feeling like there's closure with this movie. Well, I don't want closure because my biggest punch up is why aren't there more of these fucking movies? Like, supposedly they're working on a sequel. I need nine atomic blondes. Like, you know, if Charlize Theron uh, gets too old to like, you know, like, hey, I don't want to be thrown through a plate glass window anymore. If she's not like Tom Cruise, who's willing to die on set, then yeah, maybe someone else could pick up the blonde mantle. But God damn it. I need to be on Atomic Blonde 3 by now. And the fact that I'm not Mm -hmm. is is criminal. Yeah. If I wanted to see something in the sequel, it would be more of Merkel and his, uh, you mentioned that he had a, his infrastructure of all these computer nerds that you're like, this is the 80s. You really have this? I'd like to see a little bit more of that and more of a partnership. Maybe the next movie, uh, Merkel is officially working with Lorraine or or something like that. Because I think they made a good pair. Oh, he becomes her like uh, her cue or her like Felix Leiter or something like that. I kind of worry about that stuff. That's why I I always worry about the idea of sequels because I'm like, ah, am I going to regret that there's a sequel to this because they're going to fuck it up somehow? I wouldn't want them to take it in that direction just because it feels like so many movies do that or so many franchises have that kind of relationship. What did you call it? The the man in the chair? Yeah. But yeah, no, I even if that's the case, yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to see them working together. Well, it's tough overall, but I think it's doable because, you know, you look at something like John Wick where it was just a standalone movie, but it was such an interesting sandbox to play in that they were able to world build and build out a universe in two, three, and four. I'm not quite sure this has to be that. Since it's set more in the spy subgenre, it really could just be the further adventures of. This could be from the case files of Atomic Blonde and just set it up that way. You don't necessarily need to build on to the building. I I think you've got a pretty good formula here uh, without complicating it too much. Yeah, I think so too. You're right. Uh, I hope someone pays attention to you guys and takes all your your advice and your suggestions. From your lips to Ray Stevenson's ears. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe in a couple of years they do a, a prequel. And Atomic Blonde gets played by Anya Taylor-Joy. She's coming for all your roles, Charlize. <laughs> Whoa. She's monster. Uh, please join me in the Punch Mountain video store. This is an all-action movie video store, and we have three copies of Atomic Blonde. So what shelves would you put this on? Meaning what subsections of action does Atomic Blonde deserve to be stocked in? David. I'm going to take care of two copies. I'm going to defer my third to the guest, Jimena. Uh, My two copies, first one's going to go on a Charlize shelf. I can't believe we've gone this many episodes without having a Charlize Theron action movie. Welcome to Punch Mountain Video, Charlize Theron. Uh, Second copy is going to go in 2010's action. They make them good now. You know, I I think this movie kind of gets unfairly compared to John Wick, but I also think that David Leach, this is his 
auteur moment. I think, you know, once you have a few movies in a row that look and feel the same, and you can call them sort of the David Leach brand, uh, I, this really should be on the David Leach shelf, but I'm gonna go ahead and stick with two, uh, 2010's action on this one. So Jimena, third copy to you. Third copy, you keep walking to the back of the video store and there's the, there's curtains, there's this like beaded curtains and you walk in and you think you're gonna see one thing, but Mac, I saw you shaking your head. You're not, that's not what I'm, that's not where I'm going with this. You walk in and the room only has one, not a shelf, but a pedestal. And that is where that copy goes. And the walls are just decked out in like awesome, you know, Atomic Blonde type posters in all kinds of, you know, styles and ways. There's even the, who's that? The famous artist, Patrick Nagel. Yeah. She's, she's made out in his kind of art maybe stuff from the movie set that like, oh, we have the actual hot plate that was used. And this is a room that exists in your video store. You're welcome. Wow. You're the first guest to add a cove onto our fucking video store. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you what, when you come over, we'll open up the cove and be like, it's open the whole time. (laughs) What if we meet you in the middle? What if this is a movie that you can only get with a password? What if you have to know like, oh, I'm looking for a movie. What format? VHSC and it's like come with me and like you know or something yes yes and then they just boot you into the alley like get out all right if I can't have my Shirley's Cove then then the pad the password will do cool all right sounds good all right now it is time to reveal the position of Atomic Blonde on Punch Mountain aka the definitive ranking of action movies before we hear the judgment of the mountain David Hada where would you rank this movie let me preface this by saying. By reiterating, I don't like spy movies. They just, they miss me. James Bond, never been a fan. Mission Impossible, they lose me very easily. Jason Bourne, still have not watched a single one. This shocks me. This shocks me to learn this. Please continue. Well, get ready to be shocked even more. I think this movie, I think Atomic Blonde is probably the best modern iteration of a spy movie that I've seen. I think it handles the tropes of a spy movie very well. It is able to create its own thing. It was. It's able to go into newer and sharper direction with the female lead with Charlize Theron wherever this movie ends up on the mountain I hope it ends up very high it has my my wishes I wish it the best of luck you want that cove I I, I want so maybe like a dugout maybe just like some hole in the back where it's like <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll throw it in the hole all right Mac Blake how are you feeling about this I'm also pretty high on this movie you know I feel like the action scenes they're standout action scenes but the fact that you know, they have different feels to them. Like we go from her basically like, you know, just almost too easy kicking all those cops asses to having a rougher fight to then we get to the, the you know, giant centerpiece wonder fight where she, you know, barely comes out of there alive. It's amazing. And something else about, you know, the long take fight is that at no point did it feel like choreography. Like when we were watching The Protector and there's a, a really long one shot in there or the Red Room fight scene in The Last Jedi, there's moments where it seems like, the two actors know, okay, we're going to go over here and touch swords. like, And they are just trying to like get to that position where I never saw that in this movie. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty high on it. What about you, uh, Jimena? Are there any other movies out there, you know? Well, if I could take a quick aside, are you a frequent viewer of the Mountain Movies with Mac? Do you, do you get an opportunity to watch a lot of these movies or is it kind of catch as catch can? No, I, I ask Mac what his homework is. And by that, I mean, what movie are you supposed to watch? And if I can, yeah, I more often than not, I I get excited to watch them just because I don't the fact that that it's also an assignment and we're like watching it with purpose um, is is fun. And I just like 
I like watching movies and I like watching movies with Mac. So yeah. No, I mean, David, I, you know, I frequently describe my fair wife's uh, opinion about movies. I mean, half the time is, you know, look, we've just made through a podcast. We've edited all the, the parts where it's just growling and scratching from uh, Amina. So I don't know if our listeners got really a sense of that. It's just 15 minutes every goddamn episode. We had to replace these cushions. We had to replace this <laughs> chair. She chewed through the wood again. Like, I don't care. Stick her in the crawl space and finish the movie. <laughs> oh, no, everyone. Uh, hide under your umbrellas. The rocks are falling off of Punch Mountain. The golden letters are appearing, revealing the position of Atomic Blonde. And it is, wow, number seven. That means it is five Hard Boiled, six John Wick, seven Atomic Blonde, eight Speed, nine Star Wars <laughs> Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Do people hate us for ranking that movie so high? <laughs> no, I think time will vindicate us. Listen to the episode. We put in the fucking work. I think this is awesome. You know, uh, for one, I think it's good to split up that uh, Keanu Reeves double bill of John Wick and Speed. It's interesting to see Atomic Blonde right next to John Wick, right under John Wick. But I think these are kind of bookends, really, as far as like David Leach's efforts. I I keep mentioning it enough in this episode and haven't given him a fucking shelf yet. John Wick was his assassin movie. Atomic Blonde was his spy movie. I'm excited to see what he does next. Well, don't get too excited because the answer is Deadpool 2. Fair enough. It's comic book movie. Okay, I, I I don't mind that. You know, now that I I'm seeing it through your eyes, David, like the his act or what did you say? His assassin, his spy, now his comic book. All right, I'm on board. I'm on board. Well, then all aboard the bullet train. Oh, <laughs> which I enjoyed. Actually, his next movie I I saw today, starring Ryan Gosling. It's The Fall Guy. Based on the TV show. Uh, I assume so. Let's go. Okay, yeah. No, I'm very much into that. At this point in the podcast, we'd normally do a, a call to action segment where we'd play some fun sounds and spotlight a deserving nonprofit. But today we want to touch upon what is happening in Gaza. Like any rational people, we are horrified at the loss of life, the escalating cruelty of denying humanitarian aid to the displaced and the injured and the dying, and what appear to be war crimes against the people of Gaza. For the rest of the year, after every episode, Punch Mountain will make a small donation to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. The PCRF is the primary humanitarian organization in Palestine. They deliver crucial, life-saving medical relief and humanitarian aid on the ground. For more information or to donate directly to them, visit PCRF.net. Jimena, my feral wife, my uh, beloved partner, thank you so much for taking time. Thanks for doing the podcast You and suggesting this movie. Uh, it was great. Thank you so much. Yay! Thanks for having me, and I'm glad you guys like it, and I like it even more now because of you guys, so hey, we all win. Thank you for making time for the show. Thank you for this gift of Atomic Blonde. This was an absolute treat. Uh, I do enjoy our talks. Yay, me too. All right, folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain@gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac standup. Next week, we're wrapping up our run of guests. Uh, we're going to have writer, performer, host of the Rooster Teeth podcast and all-around good friend Andrew Rosas. He'll be here joining us to talk about from 1994, directed by James Cameron. We're doing True Lies. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.